Hello, my fellow Westorians. Welcome back to another episode of the History of Westeros podcast. Today, we're dealing with something as mysterious as it is epic, a global event, something the ancient world doesn't have a lot of, or at least doesn't perceive, because the ancient world doesn't have great knowledge of what's happening in faraway land. But here in the connected modern world with technology enabling exactly that, we're all able to, not that we always do, but we're able to take in a lot more about the world around us. In the scope of grand world-altering times, we're small, more than small, really, but I find it helpful to accept that as much as possible. In the case of a global event, of course we're very small. No one person can, can change such things on that scale. So I just try to do the best I can, and I hope you do too. That's what we're trying to do here at History of Westeros, just to entertain, immerse, and escape. So let's do the best we can, always. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Sean, today, I'm sure you're doing the best you can with whatever beverage you brought to the table today. A good beverage makes the day even better. <laughs> but it, I think I have four different things mixed here. I've got the protein green naked drink. I've got the kiwi strawberry sparkling ice. Of course, classic Mountain Dew. And uh, one of the listeners, Devoted, recommended the dragon fruit, which oh. is appropriate, uh, oh. Red Bull flavor. Red Bull has a bunch of new flavors now. I didn't know that. Uh, so I apologize if I fly off today. <laughs> we just painted one of the door, two of the doors in our house, the color dragon fruit. That is the name of the color. Oh, so. There you go. It's a dragon fruit kind of day. I think you're, you dragons. guys are a week early. Next week, we're talking about the, the freehold of Valyria. But hey, you got to get ahead of the dragons. You know, bad <laughs> if things you're smart. happen. Yeah, if you're smart. If you're smart and capable and you have plenty of dragon fruit. That's very cool. I'm glad you're actually getting suggestions from people now. That's not something I foresaw. When we started this podcast, <laughs> trading <laughs> beverage advice with people. <laughs> but hey, that's an aspect of our show. We go where things take us. We prepare a lot, but we also prepare to go places we weren't prepared to go. Oh, hey, how does we'll, that work? We'll accept any kind of profit. <laughs> PHF. <laughs> yeah, whichever profits. <laughs> And TKOK Podcast Networks into Super Chat says it's always a special occasion when I can catch a little bit of How Live. Yes, thank you for uh, saying that and for being here today. It is a special occasion when you can be here. We're, we appreciate it when you can show up. And that goes for all of you who are able to make it live. Most of you listen to the edited podcast version. But when you come live, that's really fun. We, we have extra appreciation for that because you're participating and potentially even asking questions you're a little more likely to uh, directly affect what is said in the live stream. But you can also affect what's said in the live stream by sending us questions ahead of time or by interacting with us on one of our social media sites like Discord or Facebook, Twitter, or uh, sending us a, an email, westroshistory at gmail.com. 
You can also go to our website, historyofwesteros.com, to support the show in a variety of ways. You can access Patreon or make a donation to get the bonus episodes that would come with a Patreon subscription. You want to lock in that Patreon subscription price. We're getting pretty close to raising it because the amount of bonus material included is increasing. And we've been working on that in particular this early part of the year. So with more bonus material, it seems fair to raise the price a little bit. With that in mind, we're finally recording Brandon the Builder this Wednesday. And it appears that we'll be recording two episodes at the same time, both Brandon the Builder and the Buildings of Brandon episodes, the companions. The Buildings of Brandon episode will be Patreon only. So this is a great time to both lock in that low price and get that episode pretty soon. We've also got other bonus episodes like Gossos and the Red Kraken episode, etc. So check it out and pick the level that's right for you. I think we're going to try this out and see what y'all think. A little trivia. We're so detail-oriented on the show. Why not start and end each episode with a trivia question? Meaning the question gets asked at the beginning. We'll give you the answer at the end. So with that in mind, our first ever History of Westeros live stream trivia question. The longest summer in Westeros history that we know of, that we're told of, was when? Bonus points. Now, there's no real points here, but give yourself extra credit. If you can also say how long it was and what year it started. A lot of what we'll do today, since we're not only dealing with vague and uncertain histories and ancient accounts that predate writing, well, this is a topic that George R. R. Martin is playing close to the chest for story purposes too, right? He's not only is it obscured by the natural order of things, the ancient past being what it is, but George is intentionally hiding stuff for story purposes, right? Doesn't that, is that how you view a lot of this, Sean? Like some of it's intentionally held back because he wants to reveal it in a certain order? Yeah, I think there's a couple of factors. One is definitely he wants to maintain some ambiguity, the ability to surprise you and so on. But also because he might not have it all fully fleshed out in his head. He might not have yeah. the, even if he has the tentpole plot points worked out, he might still want to be able to work in thematic elements or symbolism and stuff like that. So that's true. The, yeah. He doesn't want to work himself into a corner. I mean, he he's already had yeah. to back out of the five-year gap and that was difficult. So better to keep that to a minimum. With that in mind, I don't think we're going to find a lot of answers here because George isn't giving them to us. We shouldn't expect answers from an author who's intentionally hiding a lot of them, at least for now. So let's just try to get a good handle on what the questions actually are. That'll help us almost as much. Keeping in mind a few basic details like the wall being built afterwards, the Night's Watch found alongside the long night or during the long night, maybe, and with the, with the wall at the same time. So the night for it obviously wouldn't have existed yet either, most likely, since it was built as part of the wall. Winterfell may not have existed yet either, though that's not as certain. I would guess that it was. I mean, the name itself hints at the idea that Winter was defeated there. And obviously, there's other interpretations and there's a lot of other ways to look at it. But still, given what we know, that's what I lean towards. What do you think, Sean? Is that, is that what the name suggests to you? Have you ever thought about what the name Winterfell means? Or is that, is that just something, a cool name? <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't thought about it till we were starting to do this. And I, I wish I knew a little bit better linguistically if maybe the word fell has more or the suffix fell mm. has more generic meaning and gets used. And I, I couldn't think of any off the top of my head, other examples of it. Something to file away it, for later, yeah. With that in mind, I did at first intend for this episode to cover the Long Night and the others both. But as we so often do, like Ice the Sword, we split into two topics. We'll relate the two topics to each other, but in separate episodes. Of course, they're overlapping a lot. The others emerged for the first time during the Long Night, and there's a chance they caused it or at least enhanced it. 
It's our usual recurring good problem to have so many awesome things to talk about. The rabbit holes are as endless as they are bottomless. So we will be focused on the long night, causes and effects, with the others saved to focus on in a few weeks. Why a few weeks and not next week? Because we already have guests lined up for the next two Sundays, and that is not the topic. So yay to guests two weeks in a row, and we'll get back to the others probably in three weeks. But with these two related topics, we'll start with the most ancient context we have, gradually shifting the focus towards what we might expect in A Song of Ice and Fire as we progress, and using the real world, as we often do in these world-building episodes, as a lens to understand that which we cannot understand, and to understand George's influence. Because as always, George is well-read, knows a lot about the real world, and uses it to inform his writing, especially in realistic terms, how things work, physics and geology and architecture and all that sort of stuff. As always, we encourage questions, but some of you who follow us have submitted questions about the others. So those are going to wait. Let's get to the first mention of the long night in the world of ice and fire and go from there. As the first men established their realms following the pact, little troubled them save their own feuds and wars, or so the histories tell us. It is also from these histories that we learn of the long night, when a season of winter came that lasted a generation, a generation in which children were born, grew into adulthood, and in many cases died without ever seeing the spring. Indeed, some of the old wives' tales say that they never even beheld the light of day. So complete was the winter that fell on the world. While this may well be no more than fancy, the fact that some cataclysm took place many thousands of years ago seems certain. And Miss Cat gives us a question here. Is the long night just a metaphor for winter or was it really an endless night like a polar winter? That is a fantastic question to start with and we'll certainly not answer it straight away. We'll answer it throughout this episode as best as we can because I, I think it is a very much a core question. With our real world comparisons that you'll see, we've got a lot of shifting weather and climate change stuff that's happened throughout history that's been well documented that we can use as a lens for when it was coldest. The Little Ice Age is going to be something we're going to talk about today, which is a real-world period. But darkness, that's the part that is trickier. Because even in the case of global temperature dropping, it, it isn't permanent darkness. We don't have anything like that. That's more of a, a shorter-term thing. So uh, actual darkness that lasted a generation, I tend to doubt that. Even if it's not really a generation in only a few years, I tend to doubt that as well. So I do think it's more of metaphorical, especially since we've seen the others on page and they didn't bring any darkness with them. They seem to have brought cold or at least enhanced what cold was around them. But I don't see them bringing any night. Now that could change. Maybe if they're more powerful, they can do that. Maybe they can make night more dark. Like they can make cold colder. I don't know. So okay. My take too, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. There, there probably were some periods of extended darkness probably not years, but maybe maybe weeks, months even. Yeah. And it may have been weeks and months of a year for many years. And so a combination of an amount of extended darkness combined with the cold, combined with an extended years and years of time would be described as years of darkness. Mm. You know? It's also worth noting that... Or uh, just less darkness uh, and more darkness per day. Like in the winter, right? We have Even if it's daylight. overcast <laughs> from like weird weather systems or volcanic ash or something there is still an amount of sunlight that gets through. Yes. Like it was complete darkness. If the sun wasn't hitting the planet, plants just couldn't grow. Like it, I don't think- It's pretty hard to imagine without planting could yeah. live through that. Exactly. Yeah. At least a lot in certain places. I mean, if it was a pure, truly global, then yeah, 
that's something we'll yeah. talk about here as well. I definitely think that's a good way to look at it. And I think that's usually a good starting point. We should tend to not look at these things as binary. Sometimes they end up binary, but you shouldn't, I don't think we should start with it as a binary yeah. and say it's either winter or a metaphor. So, which isn't actually what Miss Cap meant. I wasn't criticizing the question, <laughs> but it is, I think, an important thing to, to point out and something as far as an approach to take when we're tackling these issues is to think about them that way and say, maybe it can be a little of both or maybe a lot of both. Like you said in the beginning, we got to figure out what questions to even ask here. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes doing that lets us, informs us, just considering the question informs us to what the potential answers are. Yeah. And one approach I wanted to take as well is to look at the most outstanding, most ex- fantastical elements that are contained within the long night, although a lot more of that will come when we talk about the others. Still, there's plenty of it today. If we just dial it down a little bit, is it believable? Or is it believable in its current form, right? Like how much do we have to de-exaggerate it to to have it ring true to us? Or do we need to calibrate what we think is possible? I mean, like you said, if it was truly dark for 20 years on the entire planet, I don't think who's going to live through that? Like anyone? It's hard to fathom that not just Like even if like you're tough enough to survive the cold, plants aren't tough enough to create fruit, grain, whatever. There just won't be food. Yeah, how they procreate. You know, where animals are, yeah, yeah, there's just, exactly, everything would die, yeah. So, and what does generation mean in this context? Now, with all the exaggerations and, and how many years have passed, it seems likely that generation is exaggerated. But, it might not be, and it might still be a really substantial time. Well, what if it was five years of this? That's still pretty long of some intense global event, but it's it's well short of a generation. It would still be really significant, obviously. Now, let's, let's talk about that really briefly. American generations of the last hundred or so years are usually about 15 years long. There's some that are longer, and they usually correspond with major events, like the baby boomer generation. Most people have heard that term. That's pretty much born after World War II, right after World War II until about 1964. So that's more like 18 years. How do you see it, Sean? Is that basically how you how you look at it? Or I mean, it's a, it's a personalized definition because it's not a precise term. I think the nature of what we think of as a generation has changed in modern times, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. as a result of marketing, right? Yeah. There, was, there wasn't really any marketing 200 or 2,000 years ago, but marketers are trying to think about how to appeal to people that have similar mindsets, world experiences, you know, shared moments or whatever. Mm. And the baby boomer generation, that kind of got named because it was a unique thing. Generally speaking, the the birth rate has gradually been going down, like since the 1800s. I don't know how good records were before that. But right after World War II, it spiked up. But pretty much it's been going back down again since then. Mm. So it was a unique moment with all the troops coming home from World War II. America was in a relatively stable, prosperous moment. And so lots of kids were born. Yeah. And then all those kids went through several key historical moments, like television was coming about, JFK was killed, the Vietnam War, like a huge percent of people born at the same time were experiencing all this stuff. And that's George, by the way, that's really important to point out that this is George. George, Yeah, it's part of that. Yeah. And and since then, we've had a few other, like the internet kind of takes over 9-11. There have been other like moments that as a culture, huge amounts of people that are quote unquote, part of a generation, even though that's it's a blurred range of when generations start and stop and how long they last or whatever. But for most of history, people's life, one generation to the next, not much changed. Like someone yeah, born in true. 1800 mm-hmm. and someone born in 1820, that much different was about their life experience, much less year, I don't know, 1040 to 1150 to 1200. Like we've talked before, 100 years ago, the fastest way to get to point A to point B was a horse. 
Yeah, yeah. 500 years ago, the fast way from point A to point B. <laughs> yeah, I love that story. 2,000 years ago. Like, <laughs> it's only recent that generations are starting to have different world experiences. Yeah. And I think that would be true for most of Westeros. Yeah, Westeros is, now, has been more there, locked into itself yeah. for so long. Yeah. Here and there, there are. They're more like once a century than once a decade. But here and there, there are these key moments. The Targaryens come across. Yeah. Or the Doom of Valeria. Or... The Long Night, where you will have mm. one batch of people born in a similar period of time that go through a significantly different world experience than the rest. So it's harder to find an exact time period because it's basically like people that are born now and now, maybe like the second, but maybe this year or this three or four year time span. How long till they have their kids? That's the next yeah. generation, mm-hmm. right? But that's happening in this sort of continuous flow. It's not like people wait 15 <laughs> years to have the next batch of kids. Yeah. And, and it makes sense that a lot of times for a few years, one generation will be going through similar stuff. They're all like going to high school and college and they're all like buying homes and having kids or whatever. The point is that it seems like for the long night, there would be several generations of people would have gone through the long night, whether you were 10 years old or 30 or 50, like several generations, but they all lived through. But then everyone born in or right after the long night, they're going to all have a unique experience. Yes, yes. And that, and it, if it only yeah. lasts <laughs> one year, that might be significant to affect generation of people. Yeah. But certainly if it lasted 15 or 12 or 19 or whatever years, that then at least one or two generations of people are going to have it be hugely impacted by the availability of food, their world experience, the type of art they might create, or et cetera, et cetera. One thing you could maybe phrase or frame it as is in the ancient world or even in the less recent modern world, you you could have large political shifts. There are certainly huge wars and migrations and things like that and even climate change, but you didn't have as many or as frequent like technological shifts and the types of mm-hmm. wars weren't as global. Like you didn't have global wars back in you know, 200 years ago, but we had World War I 100 years ago. Global events define a lot of these things. Long Night's a perfect example. I, I like that to consider what people who were born after the Long Night in that short time period, they would be a special generation. Here in current times, people who were born during this current age, the people who were born like little Sam, little Eamon, that's his name. And whoever else is born, there's a lot of kids that are going to be born here near the end of the series. We're not going to see them grow up. So that is this generation. In China, they have the post-communist, people born right after the communist era or post-apartheid generation in South Africa. Just find a major political shift that happened in a country. And that's probably going to coincide with some sort of generational delineation. I think it's interesting right now where they have the generations outlined, like you have Gen Z and then after Gen Z is Gen Alpha, right? But I think the major defining generational thing is COVID. Sure. And I I just can't help but wonder in 10 years if they're going to define it entirely differently. It's not going to be Gen Alpha. It's going to be Gen COVID. Post-COVID generation um, or post yeah i feel like that is one of those for sure that affects and not just american generation let's get on it and nickname them now we yeah. want to be the ones that come up with that <laughs> post pan i don't know post quarantine post q pq and then in, in world it was a couple examples like this look at the the pre and post blackfire that was a pretty big deal when we discussed duncan egg especially the sworn sword right that came up a lot you have someone who's still stuck in that era in the case of sir eustace and then we have duncan egg who were born after it or Dunk's case, I guess he was just so young. Same difference. So that's really neat. We yeah. have that even in Westeros. I like that you mentioned the Iron Throne. That's a really good one. Like people born like in the dragon era, right? That's mm-hmm. a thing. Yeah, that's a really important dis- distinction. Side note on all of this, I think it's worth mentioning. 
it's more likely for a, a larger group of people in modern times to be affected by the generational events, right? Yeah. Like some technological thing or even a war. But when you go farther back and in most of Westeros, something like that happening, most people barely are aware of it, right? Yeah. Some, so some new king came in, okay, whatever, we're still going to harvest the crops. We're still going to, I don't know, maybe the tax rate will change or maybe they'll have to take one flag down and put up another, but it doesn't necessarily change their outlook on life too much. But the long night would have. Yes. Right? The yeah, long night is something big. that would have hit every social class or every, et cetera. Kind of like COVID, yeah. Even if it affected you, yeah. affects people of different classes differently, it definitely affects you. There's no way to be completely removed from it. Nina writes here in reference, especially to the Blackfire generation, pre and post, she writes that the lost generation mentality, which is another generation of Americans, if they were born in an era of hopelessness and desolation, lost generation coincided with the depression, if I recall correctly. And they may have carried that. It's like a generational trauma that even when times are better, they still carry that reminder of when it was bad because they were young. It was a formative experience. It's not like we're all adults. So when COVID hit, we had adult minds to process it, right? We have this framework. It still blew our minds, but but it's not like one of our first experiences in life, right? Which is the case for really young people. It's one of their first We're major We're adjusting to this new thing rather than being defined by right. it. Right. For them, it's like, this has always been their normal. They have hardly any experience with a different type of normal. And you might be able to relate this in other ways too, but like COVID itself is one thing, but then you get these repercussions from it. Like right. we're more likely to work from home, to do Zoom meetings. People were more, technology became, became more integrated into our lives. So you can imagine other effects of a, a generation in our youth, like adapt to it quicker or it affects their basic mindset of things. Yeah. Like how worried you are about food. That's another thing too, that's hard for us to relate nowadays. But I know that my dad raising me, it was like the most important thing in his life was making sure I had food hmm. because his dad grew up in the Great Depression mm. and didn't have food. You know what I mean? Like that it's is, hard for us hard and Americans in modern times to understand that was a real fear for generations that lived through like the 20s and 30s when having enough food was a real concern, not like enough butter or the right food you want, but literally a meal. Yeah, enough in purely day, calories. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And that so, that's a great segue to this because that was one of the major concerns during the long night is the lack of food and the starvation and all the things that causes. And as you say, the things we learn, the things, the new cultural traditions, the new things people do to get by during hard times, those things stick with us. They turn into new habits. They turn into new cultural touchstones. They become who we are in a way. Now, things that happened hundreds of years ago changed the course of history, and we're still in that stream. We got pushed in a certain direction. We're still going in that direction, even if we can't see it. So let's talk about the first time the Long Night's mentioned in A Song of Ice and Fire. We just had the quote from The World of Ice and Fire. Here it is from the other angle. He remembered the hearth tales old Nan told them. The wildlings were cruel men, she said, slavers and slayers and thieves. They could with giants and ghouls, stole girl children in the dead of night and drank blood from polished horns. And their women lay with the others in the long night to sire terrible half-human children. That last line is, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was probably added in by old Nan. Because <laughs> there hasn't been a whole lot. That's something we'll talk about more when we talk about the others specifically. There hasn't been a whole lot of, to expand on that idea. There's definitely a few things. But anyway, so we're more concerned about things that happened during it. And that would be one of them. This would be one of the worst things that happened during. But that's from a Game of Thrones brand one. In other words, chapter one, not counting the prologue. And it's particularly interesting to look at in a, in a variety of ways, of course. But if the others in the long night mentioned for the first time, both of them, 
as a member of the Night's Watch is being executed, right? So that's all very contained. There's all, all these things relate to each other right here in the first chapter. You've got justice and a sense that maybe things aren't quite the way they should be. And no one believes this guy that what he saw, yet we already saw that he really did see that because of the prologue. We wonder if his fear, the fear that Garrod, the, the guy executed, is feeling is the kind of thing that a lot more people are going to be feeling when other people encounter the others and experience that preternatural terror, which might be part of the magic they bring to the table, or it could just be the idea of them, or it could be all of it. I mean, they're terrifying. It's something I hadn't really thought about before, is it something else this does, is it even characters who are close to the others, like people in the North, people who would be more familiar with these tales yeah. or understanding of this culture, they're still suspicious of it. Ned isn't like, maybe he really was scared of it. You know what I mean? Even So if even Ned's going to chop this guy's head off, what do you think Cersei or whoever else they would is really be do, like, yeah, right. Know? Yeah, good point. It's, yeah. it's really... I mean, look at how Sir Alistair was treated by Tyrion um, over the hand, which, had already, which he didn't have anymore. The hand had, <laughs> had withered yeah. away. So he didn't have his evidence anymore. And, and Tyrion made everyone laugh at Alistair. And yeah. And that Cersei would have probably done something pretty similar to that. They do have both have that sense of humor, that mocking, and they don't want to look bad. They don't want to look like they're entertaining someone who's making them look bad. Anyway, what was the long night? Just as a very generalized question, we, we tackled it from the question Miss Cat asked. But if we try to nail it down in terms of a direct concept as a long winter or as just a time when winter was more frequent or... Should we be leaning a lot heavier into the magic? Now, here's where we get a take from Nina, and she definitely leans towards the latter. She says, I think the Long Night was no more and no less than the first invasion of the Others into our world. That the coming of the Others, not just south, but from their world into ours, was so unnatural and destructive that it literally caused winter without an end for the time they were here. I don't know if the war against the Others literally lasted a generation. That's a long time to fight any war without break, much less a war against a profoundly supernatural and powerfully supernatural enemy. But I think it was so magically and unnaturally devastating to the world that even after the Others were, for the moment, defeated, the world only recovered slowly and imperfectly, hence maybe those wildly fluctuating seasons. That's a good theory. I like it a lot. It incorporates a lot of the core elements into a very neat package. Others were created dimensionally, like spirits from another dimension. The merging of dimensions could cause a minor cataclysm. That's a tried and true thing in fantasy is to have dimensions merge and have that cause problems or cause overlap. It's touched on in sci-fi and fantasy and other stories couple off the top of my head where that happened. Wheel of Time, The Witcher, The Expanse, even to a lesser degree or maybe to a greater degree. Avatar. Depending on how you look at it. Avatar, sure. Yeah. So it's it's not explicitly what's happened here, but given that lever or that particular type of device within a story it being f fairly common, it would fit here. And I like the idea of, of the, the, the two worlds colliding into a point where it, it takes a while for it to heal itself <laughs> for it to the effects for it to wear off. And during that time, we have really, really long winters. I constantly, in my mind, am, am uh, interposing, I can't think of intertwining the idea of the others with the idea of climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe even other existential threats like nuclear war, right? Yeah. And if we set off a bunch of nuclear bombs, eventually the explosions go away, right? And you have this immediate impact of like people dying, cities, whatever. But you have this residual radiation that keeps affecting the, the world winter, on and on right? generations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
that's a good term. And George grew up during the time where nukes were new and were a big threat. They were the predominant thing in the world that we all thought would end us. That's shifted to climate change now, but it's similar. Yeah, I think a lot of people often think of nuclear weapons when we think of the dragons, but I think it's a good point, Sean. It is also relevant to the other, especially when you look at the others, the idea of like a a created weapon that, that turned on humanity. Yeah. So let's talk about maybe some of the things that would have happened during it, during this era, no matter how long or short it was, with scarcity of resources, with people on edge, people in survival mode, you're going to have a lot more violence, a lot less respect, a lot less understanding, a lot less sympathy because people are just trying to survive. They don't have room for compassion nearly as much, things like that. And this is where, in in some cases, it's somewhat confirmed. And in other cases, it's not, but we can assume it is. Here's a quote to explain what I'm talking about. The enmity between the Starks and Boltons went back to the long night itself, it is claimed. So many possibilities there. What a line. (laughs) Yeah, it's one line, but (laughs) by itself, like the Starks, was one of them involved? Did they just compete over resources? Did the Boltons say, okay, now's our chance? Or was it neither of them were dominant at that point, but they were both powerful and the Starks got the upper hand and it's held out for 8,000 years. So the Boltons are like, man, if we had just done a little better back then, we would be the ones in charge now that maybe, yeah, maybe they just, the Starks beat the Boltons or I don't know. What do you think, Sean? What is this, uh, you know, is this something we, we shouldn't spend too much time on because there's so many possibilities, but what is this line? How does it strike you? Where, where does your head go? Everything you just said, it's interesting to think about. First of all, the how old these houses are, geez, you know what I mean? The idea that they are relatively friendly with each other right now, but for them to have lasted so long and for there to be of enmity so long, it makes you suspicious of how short-term the current friendliness is. One thing, one piece of my head canon here is that it relates to skin changing. The Boltons are known for flaying, and the, the metaphor for skin changing is wearing the skins of, of animals, of beasts, of, of whatever, slipping into the skin of, it's skin changing. All The word is all pretty much always skin. That might be where the Stark's edge was over the Boltons. Um, the sigils <clears throat> represent that. One is the dire wolf, and one is the flaying the skins. And of course, that relates to faceless man stuff. <laughs> See, not directly, obviously, but what similar. they're saying is that the Boltons used to skin change into humans. <laughs> <laughs> they don't anymore. They lost. That was what the Boltons said. It's like, this is how they were. It was their marketing. It was their propaganda in the North to try to turn people against the Starks. Look, they're, they're skin changers. That's evil. That's, that's wrong. But the North kind of doesn't work that way. <laughs> Nina suggests if, if Winterfell was raised after the long night rather than before. He's got an alternative idea here. Since I lean towards it being built before it, here's a take on what it would look like if it was built after. She says it would be built where winter literally fell, like marking the spot or in that general area where the others were defeated, which may have in itself also helped end the long night. If their energies, their magic, their existence was partly enhancing or upholding winter, defeating them might lessen winter's grip and denoting the site where the battle of the dawn was fought which might be what they're talking about here or what she's referring to or what is implied here and the castle was built on top of that a comment in the chat from matt reese who ahead of this who said the same thing that he thought that winter fell was built to denote where the battle to defeat the others happened where winter fell it could be where 
winter fell to spring, but it could be where winter fell on earth. So it could be, mm. yeah. That's interesting. The beginning or the yeah. end or both. So it's not just food that people would compete over, but other basic resources. Warmth, if, if that site of Winterfell had any sort of buildings on it at all, it would be extremely valuable because of the hot springs. So it might be a life-giving resource that not everyone could share in. When, with development, more people can share in, in that warmth. But in the early days, maybe not so much. So that might be something that was fought over. Maybe the Boltons wanted that and they ended up with the Dreadfort instead. <laughs> we do have at least the seedling of ideas of where these things could start because there would be so many factors pushing people into violence. It's not that hard to see why there could be enmity. It maybe is difficult to see why it lasted so long. <laughs> but as far as how it got started, that's a little easier to, to perceive, at least from where I'm coming from. So land and food, pretty basic things you would compete over. But also there's other things that we can imagine that might be there too. Feel free to make suggestions. Now, as I said, the Night Fort and the Wall, those were probably built afterwards. We have legends like Simeon Star Eyes and other characters that are important to think about. And Simeon Star Eyes having the eyes of an other maybe is one of the things we can link to that story of half human, half other children or what have you. But that's all covered pretty well in our Night King episode. So many of the stories in Brand's arc have come true in modern form. That's one of the things that I really like to think about is because we've had so many legends come true or at least repeat history repeating itself or fairy tale or myth or legend repeating itself. That implies that some of the ones that haven't come true yet will eventually. <laughs> Whenever you're looking back on the old stories, you might sometimes be like, okay, rat cook. We're seeing that play out. We've literally had Manderly feed people to their host and we've got Walder Frey. You can see this playing out. Maybe you're not clear exactly where it's going to go. Maybe George will put a twist in there. But some of these other stories, again, Simeon Star Eyes, I don't have a modern parallel for that in mind, but we might see one in the Winds of Winter and be like, oh, there he is. That's Simeon Star Eyes. Boom, right there. It just hasn't happened yet. That's pretty exciting though, right? To think, which of these legends are going to come around? Is it just going to be something simple like Mad Axe or the Thing in the Night? Or are we going to have an ice dragon, you know, <laughs> or something like that? Hmm, exciting, exciting. Let's talk about the origin of the Long Night, how it was perceived elsewhere, and related topics. Here is another quote. In the <laughs> annals of the Further East, it was the blood betrayal, as his usurpation is named, that ushered in the age of darkness called the Long Night. Nina gave us a good idea, but that is just a theory that's a good theory. It isn't exactly supported with a lot of direct evidence. In fact, we aren't given much of anything as to why the Long Night happened in Westeros. Now, here in the Further East, it's got a name, it's got characters associated with it, it's got a kind of a semi-direct cause. So that's a really interesting delineation here. We've got Westeros where it maybe is the true origin of it if the others did it. But other than the others, what their motivation is, why they came, what caused them to come, we don't really, I don't know. So does it relate to this blood betrayal thing? Or is this blood betrayal some other kind of long night, maybe a related global event that originated over in the Far East that has been so far in the past that modern sources conflate the two. I tend to think it's one event, 
but not with a ton of confidence. The more I've researched the real world version to this, the, the more I lose my confidence in some older theories I've had while continually forming new ones. Maybe it was, let's say there was some sort of celestial event knocked Planetos off its axis or warped its orbit around the sun or something. And that might have not only created a temporary long winter, but also thrown off seasons in general for, you know, in perpetuity. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think and, it's a very strong possibility. But even if that was the case, it wouldn't necessarily have created a long night for everyone around the world at the exact same moment. Mm-hmm. It might have, you're right, depending on where population centers are, where the, I don't know, where the equator of Planetos is or what the angle, the you know, you could see a lot of different yeah, ways yeah. where it might have been like 10-ish long year winter in one area and then in another area, even though it cleared up in the first area, maybe even separated by 100 years or something mm-hmm. like that. Especially because we're talking about something that happened thousands of years yeah. ago and it might have only lasted for 20 years that these little 20-year moments might have happened in different areas around the world hundreds of years apart. One or the other, they might over time get conflated into one central thing. Yeah, it's like a domino effect, but the next domino might fall 10 years later. It's not like an instant right. domino. Yeah, like, and, like one culture is pushed to migrate and that affects the other culture over time. And then, yeah, and does, then that culture migrates somewhere else. And then, yeah, th- that plays out. And this can be long. further related in how something similar could have happened in different cultures at different time periods. Yes. But enough time passes and they all become lumped together. And in modern times, even if we understand science better, we can learn to separate them better. But what, what I'm thinking about is like the flood. The flood, right? yeah, the like global you think flood. Of like, no one yeah. a flood. Like every culture and every mythology has some flood story. It probably wasn't a worldwide flood at the same moment. It's just that floods happen in different parts of the world. And when they do, they're big moments that get remembered and written about. It's almost certain that it wasn't the same flood in every culture at the same time. But since all cultures do have these flood moments, they make it into their mythology. Yeah, yeah. most cultures Just like the long night water. would make it into <laughs> all the different planetos mythologies, even if they actually happen in different time periods. True that, yeah. Because it's so far in the ancient past, it's super easy to not know what's super ancient and what's just regular ancient and to lose that distinction. And maybe even take that a step farther. No. And at least... Just kidding. Oh, all right, you're right. We should just end the episode now. No. Uh, at least in a Christian mythology, the flood came as a punishment from God, mm. right? And True. Which might be so, the long night, might have been a punishment from the children of the forest or, or something. Yeah, or... And in different cultures, it might come from some other different powerful like godlike entity. The blood entity. betrayal is what's called here. That's... Yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. And anyway... That was already stewing in the back of my head, but you really brought it out just now. Yeah, so. no, that's good. Yeah, like that was right on point here. It's, it's tempting to consider the coming of the Andals as a trigger, like as a punishment, like as breaking the pact. The timeline really doesn't support that, even with the wiggle room we have. Now, it's not entirely out of the question, but I don't really see it working. Uh, even with that uncertainty and that wiggle room, the problem is that the Valyrians are said to have risen after the Long Night. The Valyrian expansion is what pushed the Andals. It, it doesn't really work too well. And Sean, you noticed that it's also just clarified somewhat early from Maester Lewis. So it's setting this expectation. Maybe it's going to, maybe we're going to be told this is wrong, but it sets the expectation yeah. that this is accurate. Here's the quote. It doesn't seem like Martin would start us off with the wrong idea on something that's already maybe like a... Too obscure. You know, like, yeah, the, the Andals exactly, versus the exactly. first men, like, who cares when yeah. you're reading the first chapter? That's so obscure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you don't even... And, and you also, don't even know who the Andals and the first men are at this point when you're reading this book for the first time. You're like, oh. 
And Lewin is also, generally speaking, presented to us as a, a, a trusted source of knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah. Like when it comes to like, magic, he's not so he's not as smart. But the Andal migration isn't really a magical event. That's yeah. that's. And in, he right. even still isn't as dismissive as Yandel is, for example. True. That yeah. is very true. Yes. Good point. So when he says, talking to Bran here, he says, "As the kingdoms of the first men held sway, the pact endured all through the age of heroes and the long night and the birth of the seven kingdoms." Yet, finally, there came a time many centuries later when other peoples crossed the narrow sea. The Andals were the first. Yeah. So now, of course, we actually do know that's kind of not true because of the way history says, like, the first men aren't really one ethnic group. But that kind of detail wouldn't be appropriate for Lewin to teach a seven-year-old. That's, that's more into the advanced class. And he's talking to Bran, you know? <laughs> so Bran is seven. We've got to yeah. remember who the audience is here. <laughs> and it's also worth noting he says kingdoms, plural, yeah. of the first men, which implies it's different right. And he right. even says, yeah. he says other peoples, plural, okay. cross the narrow After sea. The long so night. They, yeah, he's saying yeah. they were the first ones to cross after the long night, which that is accurate as far as we know. Okay. Care, subtle, but carefully worded to right. allow yeah. for these different things. I withdraw yeah. my... My <laughs> criticism there. <laughs> so it doesn't really work to pin the Andals on the long night, even if we include the like history is written by the winners thing and they wouldn't want to blame themselves for that. But yeah, it still probably isn't true. Now, volcanoes may have played a role in the long night, maybe in, if not the Westerosi version of it, maybe some of these other ones around the globe, if they were different events, if they were distinct events, but not the doom of Valyria. That's even more well-documented. It was only 400 years ago. There's definitely no way that had anything to do with the long night. But again, it could be other volcanoes, ancient eruptions or something like that. One of the reasons, of course, we consider that it was caused or triggered by the children of the forest was because it's a natural thing. It's nature magic. It seems related, like changing, messing with the seasons, messing with the day and night, messing with the natural order of things. That sounds like their arena, their sphere of, of influence on the supernatural side, especially given that the TV show purports to make us believe that they created the others directly, which I tended to believe before the show did that. It was certainly a strong idea. It certainly gained steam. It wasn't a new idea when the show gave us that. Nina says, the thing that makes me think not. So she's against this idea. I, don't, I like when we don't all agree. <laughs> so here's an alternative take and then we'll get here from Sean. The thing that makes me think not is because a prolonged winter would suck for the children, maybe even more so than the first men. At least the first men might have the ability to store crops and stable animals for winter sustenance, though probably not for an entire generation. But the children of the forest, what the hell are they living on for 10, 15, 20 years of winter? I doubt a generation-long winter would be conducive to the flourishing of plant or animal life, so at best this seems like a suicidal plan for the children. The long night to me seems like an aberration of nature, a disturbance to the natural order that may have permanently whacked seasons out of their regular pattern. That is anathema to the children whose byword is natural harmony. Well, I mean, I think that they messed up. Yeah. Is the point. Like, I don't like that isn't there. They didn't yeah. want that to happen, yeah. but it did. This wasn't what they intended, but it may have worked out this way. So that I would push back on a little bit with that one. I do like where she's coming from in that. I think it makes a lot of sense. It maybe gets into what we have theorized before that some children of the forest thought this was a good idea yeah. and others were like, no, there's too much that can go wrong here. Yeah. As for surviving this during winter, I'm not as sure that she is on that one because I know we've seen them like they have the mushrooms underground. And yeah, the, we have people in the chat who are talking about different diets for, for It's possible and they don't eat that, that much. But maybe, yeah. I don't know, it's still a pretty good point. It might be harder Yeah, yeah for I them. don't think they wanted a it long winter. I don't think there's any world in which the children are like, yeah, let's switch nature around. Yeah. But I do feel strongly that it was the children's actions that inadvertently led to this. 
And they certainly wanted to undo it later, it seems like. After all, they are something we've got coming later is they gifted the Night's Watch 100 obsidian daggers a year. That's the story yeah. that we're here. So, they, oh. so that might be like, whoops. Yeah, we feel <laughs> <Here>. bad. <laughs> <laughs> Let us try to undo this mistake, or at least this is how you fix it, or that the faction of children that was against creating of the others was like, here's what you do. <laughs> What do you think, Sean? For what it's worth, I don't have any long-standing or strong opinions one way or the other about it. But I will say that just thinking about this uh, as a parallel to nuclear weapons, for the most part, the people that came up with the technology behind nuclear tech, nuclear bombs and other you know, c- connected sciences, they were peaceful people. They didn't want yeah, bombs. They weren't running you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, you're right. Yeah, they were like realizing the potential power that was there. And some of them were thinking about as a power resource. Some of them realized it could be a weapon. And a lot of them were like, we should not tell government leaders about this because they're definitely going to use it as weapons. No, they would never do that. You know, (laughs) like, (laughs) anyway, you could see how the factions, the children might have been torn, might not have realized quite what they were getting into. Yeah. Um, Tommy points out as well, they have such long lives that a long night in winter isn't really that long to them. Okay. Is one interesting maybe time not. wise yeah. relatively not but they still need to eat yeah, in the meantime that's yeah. true and maybe theoretically there's some kind of but even something like mushrooms growing under the ground they still depend on nutrients that come from decomposing plant material and bacteria have to exist you know there's still it, it's not it's almost no food just like grows all by itself it's connected yeah. to the rest of the pieces of the ecology and years and years of no sunlight it just ruins the whole system i like the example here of hiding the truth from the de- people in charge. If you've seen Rogue One, remember that Galen Erso was a peaceful man. He didn't want to build the Death Star. They, they, <laughs> what Director Krennic did was he took Galen Erso's research and passed it on to the weaponizing team and kept these two teams separate. <laughs> the, the team that was figuring it out and the team that was turning it into a weapon. And when that's why he left. That's why he quit the project. And that's why the, where the movie starts. So that's mm-hmm. all. Yeah, that's, is, that's perhaps inspired. The, the writers of that may have been a little inspired by yeah, real world nuclear scientists. Yeah, it's outlined in um, Catalyst. Right? Mm-hmm. The book um, Catalyst book was a really Catalyst, good book. Yeah. Yeah. Shay and I both read that Star Wars book Catalyst. Very yeah. good stuff. It goes through that pre-Rogue One period during this building phase. Anyway, what about the others? Maybe the others caused the Long Night more directly. Nina's suggestion earlier was that the rift that allowed them to enter this world may have caused that, but maybe they were more directly responsible for it. As in, they came to being somehow, or maybe through the children, and then their magic brought the Long Night. That was part of the it getting out of control thing or that they were enabled by it like they've they've been around a while but when night was dense enough it allowed them to emerge like the stars were aligned just right not literally stars aligned but meaning like a, a series of conditions that had to be just right for them to emerge and if we're coming to modern times in a song of ice and fire perhaps the Seasons have finally aligned again in a way that allows them to come back again. It's that finally the pendulum swinging between long summer and long winter, it's finally going to be a winter long enough and deep enough for them to emerge again. I know you were saying it sort of like as a figure of speech, but the stars aligning might be closer to accurate than you think. Yeah, you're right. The the celestial bodies (laughs) aligning such that the winter lasts long enough to release the cold powers that be, you know. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Because if they could bring the cold... It, it begs the question, then why have they waited so long? Like, if they could bring this massive cold, and what is it taking them 8,000 years to recharge their mana? I mean, what is the, like, they, you know, I mean, like, I what's the deal? In some respects, some people think there's something to do with them 
needing to create more of them, no, which, which is the idea really with crafters time. and his kids. Mm. And yeah, that, that is one element among others is that there, there was legitimate, like you, you laugh about their mana, but that they needed greater numbers realistically. Yeah. And again, we return to this, maybe it's not a binary. Maybe the others, it's, it's the question isn't whether they caused it or whether it caused them. Maybe it's both. They support each other. It's a symbiotic sort of relationship. They came through a similar origin point and support each other. I don't know. Nina points out the idea that others do seem to bring cold with them. They do, least, yes. That right? seems to be true, yes. Uh, I also thought it was interesting. I remember at one point, Sam kind of questions the idea that the others came with the cold. Or maybe the cold came with the others. Like Sam yeah. understands. There might be a <laughs> mix-up of cause and effect there. But my thought is that maybe they're amplifiers of cold. Yeah, like, yeah. You need like a that. certain little amount of heat to spark a flame. Yes. But once you have that, huge amounts of heat can be created from it once it gets going, right? So mm. maybe there's some sort of conduit or amplifier of cold. I really like that explanation. It, it fits in with what we've discussed before. Like you can't, a desert mage isn't going to summon in yeah. the desert, especially yeah. not in the desert, but you might whip up a sandstorm, right? That, that makes sense. But you get a, a cold mage in the Arctic he might create a, element. a winter yeah. storm that wasn't there before, yeah. but he can't do it if if there's a if there's an age of summer and the Arctic's not cold right now. You know? Yeah, as we very much love to do, we look to the real world. Magic doesn't require an explanation, but it is fun to ponder and contextualize and explore. Also, as we've seen repeatedly in George's world, the natural and supernatural are rarely entirely separate, if ever. What are you focusing on if you're concentrating on magic? For example, related to what you said as an amplifier, Melisandre gazes into the flames. Bran, when he's drinking that werewood paste, they tell him to focus on the werewood or to focus on the raven and kind of imagine himself with inside it. There's like a, it's like a locus, like a thing you have to focus on. You need to know which elemental force to engage with. That's what your magical teacher is advising you on. What to focus on, what to think about. So if we're trying to contextualize this magically, the long night, whether it's like, solar flares or controlling clouds or mists to block the sun or, or volcano magic. There's always some sort of lever we can point to. George's magic isn't the kind that you see in a lot of other fantasy traditions where it's just, if you get the right phrase and hand gesture combination just right, it draws on the magical energy. Now, you have to become like a part of it here. To draw on magical energy, it's like you have to fuse yourself with it. You become merged with it. There's a high cost and the results seem uncertain. There's a lot of failed attempts at rituals and the like on record in Westeros and Essos. And there's some that have succeeded too, apparently. <laughs> and whenever we can involve knowledge from the real world, well, that has its own uses, its, its own value. And in this case, it can tell us quite a lot from the human perspective because we have a very strong documentation on what happens to towns, villages, nations, bodies of water, forests, mountains, cultures, all sorts of weather patterns, including daylight in the real world when the temperature drops. So yeah, the little ice age. Even a little bit. Even a little bit, because a little, yeah. as we've learned, as climate change has taught us in the modern world, slight variations in the average temperature can change large, can result in large fluctuations, can result in more extreme weather events. The little ice age is a debated and not fully understood era. Even the range of years in which it happened is uncertain, but it's not a major point of contention. The, the, the range of years is something debated on the fringes. It's not a, something we need to worry about. There is there is seem to be widespread agreement on what happened. The, the debates on what caused it, 
that sounds familiar, right? That's what we're working on here. Like, why did the long night happen? So there's a mountain of evidence beyond the scientific record for this too. It's really interesting. There's there's just diaries and articles and sermons and artwork that indicate this happened over this period of time, this long period of time. So things that we don't have in the Westerosi version, which is why we need to look to the real world for examples because we lack Westerosi ones. But these are so good. They're really relatable to Westeros, I think. Your mileage may vary, but let's get into it. The f- Here's the first of a few quotes from Environmental History Online. The Little Ice Age was a period of regionally cold conditions between roughly A.D. 1300 and 1850. The term Little Ice Age is somewhat questionable because there was no single well-defined period of prolonged cold. There were two phases of the Little Ice Age, the first beginning around 1290 and continuing until the late 1400s. There was a slightly warmer period in the 1500s, after which the climate deteriorated substantially with the coldest period between 1645 and 1715. During this coldest phase of the Little Ice Age, there are indications that average winter temperatures in Europe and North America were as much as two degrees Celsius lower than at present. So 1300 to 1850 is a much wider range than we're dealing with for the long night. So we're not terribly worried about a long night of hundreds of years long. We're, we're more worried about whether generation long. But that range, it narrows down there, it says... So 1645 to 1715, when it was worse, that's still quite a little bit longer than a generation, but useful to us as a partial comparison. It's not so massively different. I want to say a couple of things that one, even though that's like a relatively small period of time, especially compared to like one generation, it's a super, super short period of time compared to real ice ages, last yes. like a hundred million years. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Something <laughs> insane like that, yeah. <laughs> but, but those are also more significant temperature variations one or two degrees Celsius, while big enough to have a big impact, is still really small compared to a generation of no sun. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, with lots of comparisons to make, but certain contrasts to point out also. Yeah. So perhaps this is where the magic sits, taking something that, if it was more realistic, would play out over a longer period of time like this, like 50 to 60 or 70 years, as the peak of the Little Ice Age was, and just making it into a smaller range. Like the magic forced a 50-year period into a 10-year period. That, that's the thing George likes to do, right? He takes a the Hadrian's Wall and makes it vastly larger and made out of ice. So instead of a long, drawn-out ice age, just pack it into a short period of time. That's what makes it more intense. By making it more compact, it's more impactful in that short span because it's more deadly and more dramatic and more memorable rather than being spread out. And within this range, there were weather events within it. Like 1645 to 1715, there were as it says, it's not a consistent one-to-one, always cold the whole time. It was like peaks and valleys. It's sometimes it's cold, but the coldest it ever got was colder than it had ever been before. Also, when George makes it bigger or, or more compact or whatever, it makes it easier to delineate. Yeah. People living through this time period, they didn't necessarily understand that it's getting colder. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like anecdotally, someone would think this is colder than last year, you know, but they don't really have any measurement. They don't know so how much colder. Maine yeah. has no idea what's going on in Italy. It's very true. Again, so while an average drop of two degrees Celsius may not sound like a lot, well, it is a lot. <laughs> and the extremes within that average of the power to kill. For example, 29 days of 28 degrees Celsius averaged with one day of negative 40 Celsius is an average temperature of 25.7. So it doesn't sound like that much. That's two degrees. That's 2.3 degrees colder. (laughs) But that minus four, that one day of minus 40 could kill half the village, if not the whole village or all the livestock. If I make the example negative 60 for one day, which is a lot more likely to be fatal, it still wouldn't change. The average would still be over 25. So it would only be a three Celsius drop. So it 
is a lot, even though maybe three may not sound like a lot, two may not sound like it's a You don't even have to make it so extreme as these because even if you make it like, say, negative 10 and maybe no one dies, all the crops, all the crops die. Yeah, you're right. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. And within the next year, totally half right. the village dies of starvation. Yeah, you're totally right. You're right. It only takes one bad day within that range. So that's why just lowering the average a little bit expands the range of which of the worst possible outcomes. That, that's, the, that's the thing. You have the, the expansion of possible deadly outcomes. The percentage chance goes from near zero to a, a scary percentage, which is anything above zero. <laughs> in, in fact, consider what was called the Cold Friday of 1810 in the Boston area. It said the more scientific minds at the American Register repeated the mercury dropped from 48 degrees on Thursday to nine below zero on Friday. And then in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, it went from 54 to minus 12 in one day and then stayed there. That's Fahrenheit, not Celsius. So that's minus 25 Celsius, which in Boston they call wicked cold. (laughs) (laughs) So this is from the New England Historical Society. It speaks of the Cold Friday. The legendary Cold Friday of 1810 brought such terrible winds and frigid temperatures that people talked and wrote about it for generations. Tales of the killer weather event made their way into town histories, journals, and court records long after it happened on January 19th. They told of the many people who froze to death while traveling along the highways. The wind blew down houses, barns, and vast numbers of timber trees. Ships wrecked, cattle froze in their barns, and old people died of hypothermia inside their homes. It was so cold, pens wouldn't write though they were right next to the fireplace. I mean, that sounds like fantasy, right? When you read that, it makes the long night description sound less fantastical. This could fit, except for the like modern accoutrements like pens, <laughs> you know, and ink. <laughs> there was, and January 19th, you could, this, could, <laughs> this could be a description of the long night. Trees falling over because of the weight of frost and snow on them. That's something we haven't even mentioned yet. That could happen with barns and, and things in Westeros too, right? When I read this quote, it just changed. It flipped my mind a lot on how I perceived the long night. That's it's amazing, huh? Also, those types of extremes add to the story. Like, yeah. like you said before, let's say the temperature only dropped an average of a little bit. And maybe people, like even when it's not colder than a year before, or you don't really know, people still will say that. Oh, it's cold. It's cold and light. It's still anecdotal. You just want to express your feelings about how cold you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if you throw in one super cold day, it, it, it suddenly becomes the story of that winter. Yeah. And if yeah. that one super cold day happens two or three days in one year for five or six days or five or six years in a row, this is the generation of the long night now. Yeah. You know what I mean? And in Westeros, they know, they know winter's coming. That's the thing. Like stark words, winter is coming. You have to, you're constantly preparing for it. This sounds like this cold Friday. You could not have possibly have prepared for it. There was no indication it was coming. The people who lived and worked outdoors and lived based on the weather, they have a good sense of the weather and what's coming and how to indicate. They just couldn't see this coming. This was beyond their ability to predict or to prepare for. There's like court records from many generations later, or at least a long time later. Yeah, it happened on the cold Friday and people know exactly what people are talking about. This is really interesting to me for another reason, because this is New England. New Jersey is in New England, is it not? And George R. Martin is from New Jersey. And this was 1810 before he was born, but not massively long before. We're maybe six generations before George was born, seven, maybe eight, maybe. 
Georgia. Enough that it still might be in local culture. Yeah, you know, exactly. It, wherever wherever you grow up, you usually learn that state's local history. You know, yeah. he, that would have definitely been something he learned in fourth grade or whatever. Yeah, like I, you're totally right. So I think that uh, it would be part of maybe the local folklore, except that it really happened. It, it's got that sort of aspect to it that it's both history and folklore because it's just so intense. And there'd be so many different individual personal stories from different families about how their family dealt with it because it was uh, affected so many people. A couple other little notes on this is that, uh, one, people were better at preparing for the cold in the winter than you might think back then. Like, we for centuries, we've known how the seasons work, right? Yeah, we we know true. when to harvest crops, when to plant them, how the sun rotates and all this stuff. And Europeans even had this idea when they came across to the New World from the weather. They, they knew uh, northern Russia, it's freezing cold. You go down to southern Italy, it's warm. The seasons are different in those areas. They, they knew they were at the same latitude across the earth. But they didn't have enough experience to know, aside from this ice age disruption, that we still have more extremes in North America when summers tended to be warmer and winters tended to be colder. Mm. So they already were getting caught yeah. off. But when they came over and it was nice and warm, then it got extra cold in the winter. They weren't quite as prepared for that. And one thing they did, by the way, is they needed more land to grow more crops because they were producing less food in these colder winters, which encroached more into native territory. More land, yep. Um, mm-hmm. Then you add in these extra cold moments that this mini ice age was causing. It makes it even worse. Yeah, because you're right. That's a lot of where, that's where some of, not nearly all, but some of the conflict between Native Americans and European settlers was what you just described. Yeah, when the winters got really nasty, just like maybe the Boltons and Starks fighting over resources during the long night, whatever caused those disagreements, it may have been along similar lines. Like like you said, when you have territory that doesn't produce much land, you need more land to, to make your basic needs. Hey. might involve taking some from your neighbor. So we got a correction here. Okay. New Jersey is not part of New England. It's not part of New England? No, really? it isn't. It's I New thought it England was. Cons- I know, we're just not from the Northeast. Yeah, you know? we're from we, the we, it's, Everything is well, New England. Well, damn. Yeah, New England consists of six and only six specific states, and it does not include New Jersey. Whoa. Can you name the six? No, clearly not. <laughs> New Hampshire, Vermont, Delaware, Massachusetts. No Delaware, no. No Delaware. So no Rhode Island either? Or? Maine. Rhode Island, Rhode yes. Rhode Island? Yes, Maine. And Maine? Yeah. It's Connecticut, so, Ma- Maine, Connecticut. Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Vermont. No okay. New Jersey, no New York. I think York. the point still stands, yeah, just, it's, despite it's that mistake. Thanks for the correction, whoever sent that in. I mean, I guess a lot of people knew that. Uh, yeah, multiple people commented <laughs> on it. One of them was Koi. Uh, nice. Thanks, Koi. Um, All right. <laughs> new Jersey isn't part of New England. It's part of New York. <laughs> <laughs> you just made some New Jersey people mad. Maybe some New and York some people, And some New York too. people mad, yeah. <laughs> they might be mad, but they know I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it's still a regional thing. Like, it would have been cold in New Jersey, too. <laughs> you know, it probably wasn't just the rest of New England or the other, the, the actual New England. Anyway, so yeah, because this was like it said, this two degree drop Celsius was all over North America and Europe. For example, here's what it did in the places that were already really cold. Now that's the thing, right? Again, two degrees Celsius just really reinforce how much difference that makes, especially the people who are already living in really cold places. Here's the next quote. The Baltic Sea froze over, as did many of the rivers and lakes of Europe. Pack ice expanded far south into the Atlantic, making shipping to Iceland and Greenland impossible for months on end. Winters were bitterly cold, and summers were often cool and wet. These conditions led to widespread crop failures, famine, population decline. The tree line and snow line dropped, glaciers advanced, overrunning towns and farms in a process. 
there were increased levels of social unrest as large portions of the population were reduced to starvation and poverty. That is just hard for me to visually process, the idea of a glacier advancing to overrunning towns and farms. I know that's got to play out over a while, but it, it's just, wow. <laughs> Again, this makes the long night seem less fantastical, doesn't it? This is another piece of strong real world. Are the Baltic Sea freezing over twice? I mean, remember when we were watching the TV show and people thought maybe that the, the sea next to the wall was frozen over? People were like, nah, that's too much. That can't happen. I don't even remember which side I took on that. I might have been one of those people saying, nah, I don't think so. But if the Baltic Sea can freeze, then clearly this Bay of Seals or whatever that is can freeze too. I don't think that's fantastic at all. You were able to walk and forth between Manhattan and Staten Island too, wow. by the way. The, the waters in New York had frozen over That's also. amazing. Yeah, jeez. And, and then throw magic into the mix and then the possibilities go up even more. So just imagine places like the North, the Iron Islands and the Riverlands. You might think those could still sustain. Like the North, you could think that'd be really difficult. But if you have like bodies of water to fish from, the Riverlands, you could still fish. Even if there's ice on the rivers, you could crack the ice and, and get fish out. But... You might be wrong about that in some cases. Here's another quote about the Little Ice Age. The prices of grain increased and wine became difficult to produce in many areas and commercial vineyards vanished in England. Fishing in Northern Europe was also badly affected as cod migrated south to find warmer water. Storminess and flooding increased and in mountainous regions, the tree line and snow line dropped. In addition, Glaciers advanced in the Alps and Northern Europe, overrunning towns and farms in the process. We have the towns and pro towns and farms being overrun again. So I'm, I have to, had to mention that twice because it's just too amazing to imagine. The, the fish, just like birds, they go south when it gets cold. They don't just stick around when it's uncomfortable. They can migrate more easily than people. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and you think about it, of course the, the way, fish left. Like, why wouldn't they leave? <laughs> not just that they're uncomfortable, but they have less food too. Yeah. Right? Less true. sunlight means less plankton yeah. and affects the whole food chain. Yeah, so they're just doing what they got to do. And and the people that who have settled in an area, unlike the animals who haven't settled, they're just living temporarily. They live. Animals don't really, well, some of them do, but not migratory animals for sure. And then think about the longer term here, what it's suggesting in the quote of Shea I just read, storminess and flooding increased. Consider because once those glaciers advance over on those towns and farms, well, eventually they melt and they're huge. <laughs> and so they cause flooding. It's just damned if you do, damned if you don't. In fact, it's the damned lakes that burst. And, the, and they, this is a quote from here. It says, ice damned lakes burst periodically, destroying hundreds of buildings and killing many people. So the Sweeping effects of this are far-reaching. It's not just the cold and the loss of food. It's the destruction of buildings and habitation and animal habitats. And it's really hard to express the level of total devastation. You have places that have seasonal snowfall during the Little Ice Age. They just had it year-round now. That's just how it goes. And probably the worst was Iceland, as far as we know. And so Iceland's a model for us to think about the worst places in Westeros, and how they were hit, Iceland maybe like Skagos or Bear Island or someplace even farther north. Here's the quote. Iceland was one of the hardest hit areas. Sea ice, which today is far to the north, came down around Iceland. In some years, it was difficult to bring a ship to shore anywhere along the coast. Grain became impossible to grow and they had crops fail. Volcanic eruptions made life even harder. Yeah, there's mountains all over Skagos. Hardhome isn't terribly far away. And there is strong evidence of volcanic activity there. So we could have a very similar situation where long night, 
maybe with some volcanic activity because the the change in temperature, there's some body of evidence that swings like that can also affect volcanoes and bring them to undormant states or more likely to erupt. And by the way, I think I, I'm hesitant to say this because I'm not 100 sure, but I think the population of Iceland or maybe Greenland and northern areas cut like in half in that time. Yes, frame, you're way. you're right. I I did read yeah. that too. I mean, the plague was awful, and it wiped out like a third of the population of Europe. But this was like half of some populations were wiped out from this. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah, arguably worse and of and more drawn out. Right, the Black Plague ran its course, and I don't know how long, but it wasn't generations. I don't uh, think. Uh, Maybe a few generations, but not centuries. Yeah, and it was the bulk of it was compacted into a few really bad yeah. years, I think. But that, but don't quote me on that. The northern mainland, the north, would be would see similar issues as well as, as Skagos and Baron would. You frozen rivers and lakes, and Stannis's campaign right there on that frozen lake that they've depleted of fish in a relatively short time. So that would be a problem for people living up there. Of course, they wouldn't probably have a whole army's worth of men fishing one lake, but still <laughs> they would have longer to need to sustain themselves during that time. So what about trading with C? Uh, you see this with Littlefinger in the Elaine one Wow chapter where he's talking about how to manipulate grain prices and how to maximize profits from the oncoming winter. And he's discussing that with other Vale Lords, telling them how they can best maximize their profits through price gouging. On the lines of people behaving badly in times of trouble, let's look at what happened in sea trade and related real-world ventures. The Little Ice Age also coincided with the maritime expansion of Europe and the creation of seaborne trading and later colonial empires. First came the Spanish and Portuguese, followed by the Dutch, English, and other European nations. Key to this success was the development of shipbuilding technology, which was a response to both trading, strategic, but also climatic pressures. Basically, we're saying the Little Ice Age spurred colonialism, which is like, geez, talk. So earlier when I said the domino effects of, of it were really bad, probably didn't even think of this because this is about as bad as it gets, right? This is slavery and genocide. Certainly the people who got rich off global colonialism would argue that it wasn't awful, but they're evil. So we don't really care what they think. As we said regarding Danny's predicament, there's no compromise with slavers. Same goes for genocide. There's no acceptable amount. So there's really no competing opinion here, right? I mean, not that every aspect of new cultures meeting each other was bad, but speaking, and there's no need to mince on that. A good example here as well of how climate change affects history. Prior to the English arriving and settling New England, there were the French. But the Little Ice Age destroyed their colony. A lot of historians believe that New England would actually be called New France, if not for this particular colony getting frozen out. They happened to relocate to Nova Scotia in this case. If that were true, we would have just now quoted the New France Historical Society Journal instead of the New England Historical Society Journal. So this French settlement that was failed because of cold and, and starvation and scurvy, which relates to those things, it had precisely 79 settlers. This was on St. Croix Island. The island is still French named. <laughs> and this same number as the 79 sentinels frozen into the wall. So probably just a coincidence, but 79 is a very specific number. It's not like three. Ooh, three? Yeah, three. You know, that's, a, that's the same number. Five? We're, well, I'm five also. No, 79 is a lot more of a coincidence if, it's not, if it is a coincidence. Moving on to another interesting event along those times, the Spanish Habsburg Armada of 1588 attempting to invade England, who was at the time ruled by the famous Queen Elizabeth I, someone Cersei could do well to emulate. They were destroyed by an unprecedented Arctic hurricane 
after they lost the battle. So they lost the battle where they had a huge numerical superiority. And then on their way home, this weird hurricane that was a function of the Little Ice Age destroyed the Navy. This Navy, by the way, this armada was called the Great and Most Fortunate Navy. (laughs) (laughs) Not so much. (laughs) Never name your Navy the Great and Most Fortunate Navy. (laughs) Yeah, you're just asking for it, aren't they? Lesser known is that Elizabeth followed this up, this victory up by building her own armada and sending it towards Spain. And that also failed, but I don't believe there was any Arctic winds destroying them. Again, we bring this back to Westeros. Consider that in the light of, say, the Ironborn or the Sister Men. They probably suffered pretty badly given both sets of islands lack quality farmland and if their fishing was impacted by the schools of fish going farther south to warmer waters, that would really hurt them. But it may have encouraged them in ways like what we just described, meaning not colonialism because Ironborn and Sistermen don't do that, but their version of that, which is going farther away to raid and steal and enthrall and the the bit that the Little Ice Age was described uh, an upswing in shipbuilding technology. That may have also happened. There may have been a greater emphasis on ships that could go farther away from the Sisters or the Iron Islands to pass all the way into other continents, perhaps. Uh, greater navigation skills would, be, would come from that as well. So you arguably, the Ironborn and may have become better seafarers, more dangerous because of these hard times. Uh, after all, there's a lot less to steal from people who are starving, right? You, you need to go find people that have stuff to steal from. The North would be a terrible place to raid during the long night. Like, what are you going to steal? They have nothing. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Tough times. Even the, even the Ironborn are struggling to find good targets to raid. Feel bad for them, shall we? <laughs> uh, a lot of speculation. We've talked a couple times, too, about the idea of if they are why Westeros might be behind on technology. This might be why, like an ice age might have killed off large forces of the generation, limited food and technology growth and so on. It's maybe at least point. a partial explanation. Although as soon as I say that, I wonder, I was going to point out that this little ice age, I, I think it was like back in the 30s when they first started to speculate on it, piece together some of this information. But in more recent times, studies, they're not so sure little ice age is the right phrasing because yeah. it wasn't mm-hmm. really a worldwide event. It was really just like the North Atlantic that it affected. There's some and, evidence it happened elsewhere, but it's maybe lesser yeah. and it may have been different events. Yeah, this may be different. Yeah, right. but maybe over that time, there was as much as a one degree difference in some areas, but at the but the two degree difference in the North Atlantic area, which not only uh, geological records, but also like writing records, histories of the time, moments, you know, we, we've been talking about here. We don't have all those things coming from Arabia or right. you know, other areas of the world. That's true. Or even like uh, China or whatever. Other other areas of the same long... I do long actually have some Earth. China examples in here um, that may relate. Yes. But you're right. In general, yeah. it's, it's, it's less It wasn't certain. as extreme yeah. or, yeah, uh, or pervasive or consistent or whatever. But anyway, my point is that if it happened, I was supposing that maybe this uh, long night was happening in different areas of the world at different times. If I'm right, the thing is that the whole world of Planetos is maybe arguably a little behind in technology. Yeah. So if it only happened in Westeros, that doesn't necessarily explain it. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But if it did happen everywhere at different times, that may also explain it. Who knows? It could be. Yeah, like it could have happened everywhere and maybe just because it was a bigger deal or because of magic or what happened. But it could be more like what the Little Ice Age, where it was affected the North Atlantic, the area north that area more than the rest of the world or the rest of the world was hardly affected at all maybe the rest of the world dropped by half a degree celsius or certain areas did and 
other areas. And then, of course, that's the, the upside, is which we're going to get to here. Sometimes some places like the drop in temperature. It was, And we also have to consider our source, right? Ian Dell is going to have a lot more information on how the long night affected Westeros than he is and how it affected Essos or yeah, E.T. or whatever. True. And, it, and additionally, it's possible that certain areas of Westeros were more impacted by it, like the North, right? The North should so have been more stories. impacted than Dorne. I mean, like, it's really yeah. hard to imagine it otherwise, right? Yeah. So make sure it makes sense that they would have more stories about it. Then, and maybe the, the stories might be more exaggerated or more true if the source of it was the others or something like <laughs> yeah. that coming from the North. It's also possible that the North might have been more prepared for it, just in generally having to suffer weathers. They might have been mm-hmm. more likely to have a system in place for stored maybe, grain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they might have had a larger population or, or uh, I don't know how to say this, educated people who might have been writing about it yeah. last to tell the stories, you know. Or if this, but if the seasons weren't irregular back then, it's hard to imagine they were much more than a little extra prepared because they would prepare yeah. for us. Yeah. There's a few months of winter when all of a sudden the world changes to having to prepare for several years of winter at a time. Um, but we're not sure. This is mostly speculation, but my theory yeah. is that they were regular until the long. I agree with the you. same thing. It caused a long night yeah. throughout the throughout the season. And, and George has basically said we're gonna get some kind of answer on that, which does imply that well, which implies there is an answer on that, which means that it yeah. did change. If he's just gonna give us an answer, and the answer is yeah, it's always been that way. I kind of I kind of doubt that's the answer. Like, you know? and and <laughs> I don't know if George would know this much or include this much in his stories, but he has sent a comet coming across, right? Yeah. And there yeah. is this story of like dragons bursting forth from the moon. Yeah. And so those types of things could line up with celestial events that would change the weather or the, the climate or the rotation or whatever. Absolutely. Planets. Yeah. The Carthine legend says there were two moons and one of them blew up. If, one, if a moon blew mm-hmm. up, yeah, that would that would do something. That would call, that would have effects. That would have impacts on the world. Yeah. yeah. Huge impacts. Yeah. <laughs> Gigantic. Yeah. Just on. Yeah. All right. Let's take a quick break and we'll get back into it more. We have a shirt store, a threadless store. It's historyofwesteros.threadless.com. And Sean, every once in a while, or more than every once in a while, says something awesome. And I say, good said or well point. You can get a shirt that says that. We have the new... Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort shirt. Gregor is someone we've met in person a few times. He's a friend of ours. We've gotten to hung out at cons. He's been a supporter for a long time. His Patreon name has been inspirational to a lot of people. Uh, this loving to laugh at that name get repeated. And San Rixian one day was inspired to draw him. Unfortunately, that original art was was misplaced, huh? Yes, the the artwork that Zenrixian did that's on the screen has Gregor the Toasty with armor made of bread with butter pats all over it. And he's got a big sword, but the sword is a butter knife. It's uh, quite funny. And um, the Good Said Well Point <laughs> shirt is a favorite of mine because I added it so that you can get a front and back. So on the front, it says Good Said and on the back, it says Well Point. Yeah. Said, that, that's always fun to have a front and back shirt. I don't have a lot of those. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Right on. Whenever I hear you say well point, I think of Dunk being stabbed by the well. <laughs> well point. And then well smash when he hit <laughs> Alan Cockshaw in the face. Yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. 
Play it now with Game Pass. Question from Guinevere Greenstones. Could the Long Night have created a land path between East and West? Is this where the Heart of Winter may be found? And is Benjen heading there? Any thoughts and analysis on what the Heart of Winter is and what it may mean to Bran would be very, very welcome. Okay, so a couple questions there. Could the Long Night have created a land path between East and West? I kind of doubt it because it's really far. That would be a lot. That would be not just sea freezing. It would be like an ocean freezing. And I'm skeptical that the sea could freeze as far south as the Stepstones, where it would be a little shorter. But I definitely can't rule it out. I, I, would, I would guess no, though. Is this where the heart of winter may be found, the far, far north? Yeah, I think it might. We see it in Bran's dream, when he's in his crow dream in the coma, and it tells him to gaze north into the heart of winter, and it's really terrifying, and he sees impaled dreamers, and that might be like a dimensional thing, like an otherworldly thing, but I feel like there's a chance there's something literally physically present in the far, far north. As far as Benjen heading there, I don't think so. I think Benjen's role is he's going to help maybe give information, but I doubt he's going to be the guy who solves it. You know what I mean? I think that's still going to be our Stark kids and John and, and all them. Yeah. But who knows? Because Benjamin's clearly going to show up again. I'm 100% sure of that. 99.9% sure of that. So, oh, I was going to say, in terms of the long night creating a land path, George has, has said that Essos and Westeros aren't connected. But I want to emphasize the fact that they aren't connected, not that they were never yeah. <laughs> connected by a land bridge like that. But Benjamin. In my mind, the heart of winter, and again, I don't have strong feelings on this, but just the way I've read it, the heart of winter to me is not like some some physical geographical location that someone can walk up to on the ground. It's more like the eye of a hurricane. It's like a, mm. a mobile, I don't know, if not just symbolic. Even Yeah. She asked what the heart of winter is. That, as far as what it is, it, I think it might be the, like the, the source of the other's existence, like their power, their heart in an almost literal sense. Like if it's destroyed, then so are they. Maybe something like that. Like it's important or crucial to their existence. We talked about how they may draw on or enhance the power of winter and how it may enhance them. So that kind of thematically fits to me. But of course, pure guesswork we're talking about here. Pure, pure guesswork. Everything you said just now still drives with what I said a moment ago. It could still be a mobile thing, yeah. right? They mm-hmm. might move around with where the others are, yeah, or that's might true. grow and shrink with the seasons or the, the powers of magic in the world or whatever. It's where the cold is, wherever it's coldest. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes that place even colder. As we were talking about with the Little Ice Age and with the Long Night, even if the Long Night was shorter, but nastier, we're dubious it had a heavy impact, as we were just saying, on maybe not even, maybe not on Dorne, but definitely on like places like the Summer Islands, like I really have a hard time believing it had a it had a big impact there. It's not really a part of their legends either. There's nothing in the Summer Islands section on the World of Ice and Fire that really tells a story like this. So if they were impacted by it, it wasn't something that made it into their legends. It wasn't a big enough deal. But it may have been a time of prosperity for them because food prices went up everywhere. And if they're still able to grow food there, man, some summer islanders could make bank shipping their food north, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah, they're paying how much for these? Whoa, they must be hurting. Yes, they are hurting. They're they're freezing, in fact. No wonder it's, usually I'm sweating out here. Now it's just nice. It's perfect. It's like San Diego here. Hmm. And Sothorios, surely Sothorios didn't turn into a frozen jungle? Well, I mean, parts of it might have been affected or just less hellish, <laughs> you know, but I just think it probably wasn't that impacted at all. 
That's my guess. I just, what is, that's where two degrees Celsius change is certainly going to have an impact, but it's not going to dramatically change the environment, especially because people don't live there. So it's not, it's not affecting things in this, in a way that we conceive as much. Yeah. The life's, the life forms that live there, the, I don't know, the giant apes that live there, the tattooed lizards, the, I don't know, the wyverns didn't like it. I don't even, <laughs> I don't know what we're dealing with here. <laughs> it might've even had effects that are maybe are less extreme or maybe less deadly. It, it, they might've had like higher rainfall or more hurricanes or something. Sure. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Global weather is an extremely complex subject. We're not going to get too deep with it, but here's a two sentence, two sentence quote. That gives us an idea of two things. One, how unstable the North Atlantic region is in general, which tells you a lot and could be a model for parts of Westeros. Maybe the Stormlands is an unstable region. The North maybe you could call as well, but I'm just throwing that out there. Secondly, how much the climate and weather in one part of the globe can affect others. Now, we just got to talking about how it wasn't a global event, but we also gave room for the effects to simply be milder. They were affected, but not nearly as much. That's something that is important to keep in mind here. So here's the quote. Try to make sense of this if you can. I can't, but it does the job in telling you how complex things are. And and to clarify, because there's a phrase in this first sentence, it sounds like we're talking about Westeros, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this word right, but when the Azores high pressure grows. <laughs> you can see yeah, Azor high. Yeah, Azor high. Yeah. The Azores high pressure grows stronger than usual and the Icelandic low becomes deeper than normal. This results in a warm and wet winters in Europe and in, and in cold and dry winters in northern Canada and Greenland. This also means that the North Atlantic storm track moves north, directing more frequent and severe storms over northern Europe. So like I said, I don't know what that means, but I know it's complicated. <laughs> and that's all I need to know, <laughs> right? <laughs> By the way, th this is uh, along the same line here when they're some of the, uh, I don't know, potential reasons for the Little Ice Age, which they don't exactly understand. They understand a bunch of potential reasons, but some of them might even be interconnected to each other. Mm. Like it's possible that some shift, some flares that might've heated the earth up, mm -hmm. might have changed the, the flow of water, might've changed the tides, right? Oh. And that might've changed the type of pressure on continental plates, which might've spurred volcanoes, mm. which might've put more carbon in the atmosphere, which would have blocked more sunlight, which would look, it could have been more volcanoes. It could have been more sun flares, but the sun flares could have caused more volcanoes. So yeah. like it, all these things are, are really hard to separate cause and effect from each other. They're all interconnected and can affect each other back and forth in different ways. So. Yeah, well said, well point. Absolutely. Uh, so consider all this in the light of the world Westeros exists in, like winter at Winterfell and at the Crofters Village nearby, as the things stand at the end of A Dance of Dragons, it's actually worse at the Crofters Village in Winterfell than it is at the Wall, which is the Wall's good deal farther north. So it just doesn't just get hot uniformly as you go south, though it does generally. Until you cross the equator, of course, then it just starts going the other direction. <laughs> and we don't know where the equator is in in Planetos, Taros, Martin World, whatever you want to call it. But I'm guessing between Essos and Sothorios, like in that between region there, because Sothorios is really hot and so is Valyria. So unless the equator is super wide, <laughs> it seems like it has to fit in between those two. Speaking of Essos and places around the world, we have stories to get to shortly, legends and such. But before that, we can say that, like the real world Little Ice Age, some places in the world were helped by the Long Night. Helped? Hmm, yes, indeed. Let's look at the other side of this. Again, a quote. 
from the Little Ice Age that we can relate to Westeros. On balance, the Little Ice Age affected Northern European history in different ways. Regions that diversified agriculture and had good access to the international trade network, like Britain and the Low Countries, could cope quite easily with increasingly severe weather conditions. They could import food when harvest failed. Trade also gave them the financial base to develop technological responses. In isolated regions, like high alpine areas of Switzerland, the highlands of Scotland or Iceland, the unfavorable condition of the Little Ice Age, especially cold springs and harvest rains, as well as longer winters, strongly influenced grain prices and were drivers for local famines. In Central Europe, the Little Ice Age was characterized by increased droughts as well as by increased flood frequency. Generally, the impact on different parts of Europe differed considerably. Some regions thrived while others struggled. So really important to consider that, right? The different regions affect differently. And we can, and since a lot of Westeros is based on real world regions, we have some comparisons to make. For example, the Riverlands might've been able to handle it okay. And the Vale might've really struggled. The mountains, certain parts of it might've been really difficult. The West, it kind of depends because the West, the mountainous parts of the West may have struggled, but Lannisport probably did okay. Maybe, maybe not though. I mean, it depends on how good their ability to import was, but they certainly had gold to trade for food, I would think. Unlike some other regions that would have less or trade goods of value to give to the Summer Islanders or whoever it was that was keeping things going. I'm assuming that was- Gold probably dipped in that time period, by the way. You can't eat gold. Yeah, you know that's true. The price of gold probably dropped. You can shit it though. <laughs> Uh, nice. Good said. Especially if you're a Lannister. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what the Summer Islanders say when they're sailing out. Let's get up. Let's go up there and get up a fat load of Lannister shit. That's what they're, <laughs> that's their code word for gold. Now, here's a positive example outside of basic survival something uh, that isn't colonialism or figuring out better ways to murder your neighbor. <laughs> here's something good. Art and architecture also flourished, which is probably best embodied in the wonderful winter landscape paintings, which can be considered a direct result of the Little Ice Age. These paintings show us ice skaters enjoying themselves, a sign that, that they were more than capable to withstand the harsher winter conditions, and that they also had enough food. So these are places that had that. Now, obviously, this is a region, or these are certain regions that weren't struggling near as much as others. One study I read suggests basically no one depicted winter in artwork until the Little Ice Age. That makes sense, right? Winter is usually not a great time. You're not going to like glorify winter. Like, yay, winter. You paint about things that you, usually people paint about things they like or they're drawn to. Drawing really gloomy things when artwork was rarer would have been less appealing. So that kind of makes Drawn to. I see what you, I see what you did yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I, try, <laughs> I can, if I could paint a picture of this for you. Um, <laughs> Now, you wonder, what, how does this relate to Westeros? Westeros doesn't have art like this. They don't have paint. They don't have, especially not like oil paints and canvases. I mean, there's carvings and drawings probably. And, and that would be an interesting thing, like a Westerosi archaeologist or paleontologist or folklorist or something looking back at ancient carvings and trying to suss them out. But we, one thing they did have is storytelling, legends and songs. Westeros is big on that. And since these events happened in a lower tech era in Westeros, their equivalent time period, that's probably what it was probably what picked up in the same sense that in the Little Ice Age of Earth, there was more art, 
and music in places that could do that, well, in Westeros, they probably told more stories around the campfire, probably talked more, maybe wrote more songs, things like that, which I find oddly interesting and intriguing, just thinking about that. And, and maybe this is where some of the really grand traditions of the founding figures came from. They have little else to do but sit around that meager fire and talk about the, the good old days and the heroic figures that define the eras that came before this awful time that they're living through and maybe imagining what new heroes will come next, something like that. Or I don't know, it just seems like a great fit. What do you think, Sean? I wanted to back up to something you said a second ago. Sure. I think there must be some sort of paintings in Westeros. It occurs to me because I remember, I think it was Brienne thinking about the shield. Oh, Did there's painting. Yeah, was, yeah. This, yeah, I it was more of a like, painting than yeah. a sigil. So maybe it's something Martin hasn't made much of a point of, but there's got to be some amount of painting. Yeah, I just, I'm not imagining like European style paintings, right? With like like portraits and things like that. But you're right, like some sort of, yeah, like people were, were making artwork. I'm sure it just took a different yeah. form and they probably had less access to a lot. Like they probably only had maybe one or two colors or maybe they had chalk or something. I don't know. Or that's why, that's why I mentioned carvings and drawings rather than oil paint. It does seem like something yeah. that, that Tywin would have a, a portrait painted of himself. You know? <laughs> if it was possible, he would do that. You're totally Hung up right. over behind the throne overlooking <laughs> Joffrey. <you know? laughs> and statues and stuff. Yeah, like that. Yeah. But but what about in Essos, though? Maybe there were places in Essos that did have this, especially if they were less impacted by this all and they would have had, they, they didn't have the same stunted growth technologically, especially if they're older cultures in general, like Yi Ti that comes to mind. So does Ashai. But Yi Ti has a better real world counterpart in China. As you mentioned earlier, China is a good thing to mention. But the Ming Dynasty fell during the Little Ice Age in part due to erratic harvests, which may not be related to the Little Ice Age. It may have just been happening at the same time. But it might have played a role because global weather affects global weather. So There are natural fluctuations in weather, yeah. Little Ice Age aside. Part of why it's hard to identify these types of things. The scale of something like that happening in China really blows the mind a bit. Because, yeah, hang everyone getting hangry is a problem. I'm a problem when I'm hangry. Imagine, <laughs> but the populations in China are much larger. The scale is just bigger in China. Mm-hmm. There's just so many more people then and now. So when you have famine in China, it's just way more total quantifiable suffering and just and that many more people that can rise up and do whatever they do. Just not enough Snickers. Not enough Snickers. Definitely not in China. Definitely not. <laughs> Especially not back then. This storytelling stuff, I'm really fascinated by this idea as a thing that could have happened. That sadly brings us to another problem, this general era or what would we could expect to happen, which is when you have malnutrition, when you have everyone gathering in close quarters, you have more disease. You have infections spread more easily. Uh, When you're low on food, your immune system isn't very strong. And once one person gets sick, we all know this stuff. We're going, we've been going through a current pandemic the last couple of years. We've all learned a lot more about this than we ever wanted to learn. And George has prepared a super powerful slash magical version of a disease that could really get out of hand, which is grayscale. However, that said, there isn't really much talk about disease being really awful during the long night. It might just be an expectation, a thing we can assume happened, but it isn't mentioned outright. And I find that to be a little interesting and curious. And maybe it's evidence that the grayscale thing won't be as big a deal as we might think. We'll have to wait and see. Either way, regular fluxes, colds, poxes, flus, whatever, they all do more damage in scenarios like this. Another thing that happened during the Little Ice Age was uh, a spike 
in witch trials, which is no pun intended, which is a example of <laughs> cultural pushback, hangriness, putting blame on some things they don't understand. People definitely in the ancient world tied weather to behavior, to superstition. And so, of course, if you believe there's witches, something goes wrong, you blame the witches. It's pretty awful, pretty ridiculous, but it happened. And what would be the equivalent in Westeros? A belief that the old gods are angry, right? Something like that. I mean, right now we're seeing an uptick of burnings in Westeros right now, although it's not the old gods doing that. It's Melisandre, <laughs> you know? So, mm. but it is happening. It's the same thing where religious upheaval and people like becoming more zealotous or more dogmatic in their beliefs. You see that? So that's what we you know, expect uh, in Westeros perhaps as well. One little, you know, I don't know, ironic, sad, whatever humorous side note is that there was a lot of debate about whether or not witches were causing these failed crops and colder weather and stuff like that. But the debate wasn't whether or not witches existed. It's whether or not witches could affect the weather. <laughs> oh, man. Witches shouldn't uh, have divine power. They're not God. You know what I mean? So they can't affect the weather. <laughs> that, oh, it's blasphemous. That was Some like the defense against witches. Wasn't that they weren't witches or didn't deserve to be burned, but that they can't, yeah, they can't affect the weather. Only God can A bunch of women were like, well, whatever works. Whatever gets them to not yeah. burn us. We'll, okay, we'll yeah. Tell, You're right. Yeah. We can't affect the weather. Yeah, yeah. So we're definitely not gods. Yeah, like we agree with you there. <laughs> All we have is red hair. Come on. I mean, we're good at math. Is that really going to? Jeez. <laughs> what are the listed causes of the Little Ice Age? Now, as I said before, there isn't much debate over the fact that it's real. There is some debate over what caused it. But as you also said, Sean, quite well, it's generally more of a which causes are most prominent, not which causes actually happen. Because there's a lot of examples of things that are said to be related or involved, but they don't know like what the proportions are. It's like arguing over the recipe. Should there be three eggs in this recipe or two? Right. So is it you mentioned solar flares? Solar flares are a major driver, potentially, of the Little Ice Age. Not more of them, but less of them. Lower, reduced solar flare activity would cause cooling on Earth. Likewise, genocide. You might be like, well, how does genocide cause climate change? When you kill millions and millions of people who live off agriculture, all of a sudden, all those farms vanish. That's a big change in the carbon footprint in, an, in a particular region. So you have Columbus and... These other explorers in South America and in Mexico and these areas is causing huge amounts of death directly and indirectly through disease. And that causes climate change. There's one called Mount Tarawera, which was a big, big volcano that erupted in 13 something. I'm going to save that to talk about during the doom because it's a volcano thing, but that's arguably had a big impact. So one volcano potentially affecting the global weather picture, just good example of something like that changes in ocean circulation, right? You, I think you alluded to that one, Sean, like just the flow of ocean currents and that affects the, the ocean, like the, where the warm water is flowing, which affects where the fish are. And then that affects, in turn, affects other things, like you said, like seismic activity can be affected and that can, in turn, can affect volcanoes or it can go the other way. The volcanoes erupting yeah. can cause the, <laughs> yeah, like it, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Cookie, uh, cookie? What did I say cookie? <laughs> I meant to say chicken. What? Chicken and egg. What came first kind of thing. I don't know where cookie came from. I guess I need an egg cookie. Well, there's eggs and cookies, you know. But, no, that was weird. <laughs> cookie? So, yeah, cookie. And then, and then orbital force you know and flash axial tilt. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about cookies. 
<laughs> I guess it's a good time as any to point out that today's a little different for me. Uh, normally, I wake up uh, like on a day that we record the live stream. I go to bed pretty late most days, and like five, six in the morning most days. So I wake up at noon or one after six or seven hours of sleep. Today, I got up at five in the morning. So <laughs> usually a full day before recording instead of a like kind of the first thing I do or one of the first things I do. So if my demeanor is a little different today, that might be why. You're a little meaner. I'm a little me- demeanor. Yeah, I'm a little <laughs> demeaner. I'll be C meaner or F meaner later. <laughs> <laughs> the last one is as far as causes could be like the earth actually tilted a little bit, like it's, it's, it's axial tilt went off a little bit. Now, these things are also relevant to the idea of changing seasons in Westeros, not so much in Earth, because that's more understood. So it is relevant, just not in a way that we need to explore. The Little Ice Age sat between the Middle Ages and the modern era in Europe and North America. It lingered and ended around the start of the 20th century. Wow, right? Not that long ago. Much more. That's another big difference here. It's much more recent in our past than the Long Night is, which is partly why we know so much about it and why Westeros doesn't, because it happened in pre-literate times for them, whereas here, it happened, writing had been around for quite a while when the Little Ice Age began, even though it wasn't super widespread. There were certainly enough people that could write. By the way, not just writing. When you go back, when we think the Little Ice Age maybe started around the 1300s, that's not true. But in the 1600s, I think, they were, we were already like keeping track of barometric pressure and things like that. That's really interesting, right? Yeah, like yeah. some things that the ancients did, or not, those aren't, that's not really appropriate to call them ancients, but just <laughs> people that lived hundreds of years ago. Yeah, it's really impressive some of the things they figured out. And it's also impressive how, uh, and we're dealing with something that spurred a lot of required growth. Like you talk about massive weather changes and people got to make change. You got to adapt to that. And that's where a lot of that Who, who invented the Westerosi Almanac? <laughs> you know, there's a farmer's almanac here. <laughs> so I've considered going a little deeper into this with the astronomical possibilities and stuff. If you'd like to hear us do that, let us know. We may do it anyway, whether or not we hear from y'all. Because we don't rely on feedback and topic suggestions. But it does greatly enhance the overall experience, not just for you, my fellow historians, but for us. We love your takes, your input, your suggestions. Can I real quick throw out something? You should. I don't know, interesting little tidbit connected to all this. Yeah. Because it was even mentioned, I think, that one of the maesters was like attempting to study the stars to figure out like the, the movement of the planet, trying yeah. to figure out mm-hmm. the seasons. You're totally you know? right. And humans, that's like a key part of human history is trying to understand the seasons, looking at the stars in the sky. But uh, some of it is maybe just like intellectual curiosity, but a lot of it is we need to figure out how to mark our calendars, how to manage crops, how to manage the planting and harvesting of food. It's interesting that we think of, oh, those silly people that thought the earth was the center of the universe, how arrogant of them. There's a slice of that that's true, but it was actually very sophisticated scientific explanation. Like they had a model like of the motion of if you assume Earth is the middle, they had figured out ways to make sense of the collected data about the movement of the planets. Mm. And super intelligent geniuses like Kepler were still fixed even when they started to think about what if the sun's the middle? We, we can like change these models and it becomes like a little more accurate. No, it, it wasn't like it was completely stupid what they thought before. They had very accurate logical models, but there was like minor discrepancies that Kepler was starting to figure out. We can fix these discrepancies if we put the sun in the middle. Hmm. But even he was still caught up with these weird ideas. He really had this idea going back to like Greek times. They had this idea that certain shapes were like, what's the word? Myth- mythical, mystic. There was some like kind of fantastic meaning behind like 
triangles and cubes. And he was still trying to match the orbits up with like spheres that fit around dodecahedrons or whatever. Whoa. You know what <laughs> I mean? He still had these <laughs> weird ideas connected to God that we was trying to reconcile. But as, as he shed those, he got closer and closer to the ellipsis form instead of like perfect circles going around the oh. sun and stuff like that. But any, anyway, it's it, 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 humans for a long time were coming up with very genius, mathematically logical models, even with Earth at the center. And I, if we had enough data, if George would just release to us images of the night sky and what... <laughs> Dang it, George, come on. Give we us figure photos. this out. Yeah, we need photographic <laughs> evidence. Let's move over to Essos, talking about some of the legends that come from the East and continue to frame those with what we know about Westeros and with what we've learned about the Little Ice Age. Here is a quote from our favorite or by our favorite explorer. Your favorite explorer. My favorite explorer. Not mine. <laughs> to be on the record there, not mine. Well, yours is, yours is probably Alyssa Farman. Yeah, it'd be Alyssa Farman. Like, Nymeria might be, but she's not really an explorer. Like, like she is that by circumstance. That wasn't her passion. She did some like, exploring, but it's Yeah, yeah like, Alyssa Farman yeah. wanted to do that. Loma's Longstrider wanted to do that. Alyssa you know? Farman's Corley cooler. Florian wanted to, yeah. She's cooler and more interesting. Lomas just gives us more info. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> so um, you know. sidebar, but... Um, yeah, that, that's a good point. Though. Good point. Lomas Longstrider, in his Wonders Made by Man, recounts meeting descendants of the Roinar in the ruins of the festival city of Croyane, who have tales of a darkness that made the Roin dwindle and disappear, her waters frozen as far south as the joining of the Selhuru. According to these tales, the return of the sun came only when a hero convinced Mother Roin's many children lesser gods, such as the Crab King and the Old Man of the River, to put aside their bickering and join together to sing a secret song that brought back the day. Hey, Aziz. I was just reminding myself of where the Seloru is. (laughs) 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 Looking at the map. (laughs) I couldn't tell if you were stretching your back or looking at the map. A little of both. Yeah, a little of both. Yeah, it's not a binary, right? (laughs) We we talk about that quote a lot more in our coverage of the many-faced Azor Ahai. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, it's it's honestly in the whole series, it's one of the my favorite quotes. And I, it's a beautiful quote kind of way, but in a, man, it really makes me think kind of way. Right? Secret song that brought back the day, the word, the many children, like the u- unity required. There needs to be everyone ganging up together to help work together, to help make this happen. And it framed as a song, it framed as... It just fits so much of what we expect from the Westerosi version of this, right? But it's really interesting that there's an SOC slash, in this case, I guess it's just a Rhinish version of it. But so many familiar elements here. Right? Everyone needing to, the Night's Watch and the children and the last hero and all these other people that needed to gang up together to fight the others and win the battle for the dawn. Here we have a very similar story. The Crab King and the Old Man of the River to put aside their bickering and join together to sing a secret song that brought back the day. And yeah, it's just so well written. Sing a secret song. You got the alliteration. You got the... The legendarium that is. Yeah, I mean, like, this is a song of ice and fire to emphasize this. The fact they say, sing a secret song, a song of ice and fire, that is, there's no coincidence there. Yeah, good clarification there. Nina writes, we see this with both John and Daenerys, and no surprise, they're both being set up as endgame figures. Daenerys is a unifier figure, a uniter figure. Her following is an eclectic mix of Dothraki, Asosi sellsword companies, displaced Westerosi, former enslaved people from all over Essos. She's an inspiring figure of freedom, hope, and leadership, especially against a system of slavery and oppression, which is what the others are, right? 
Likewise, John's story has featured him not just recognizing the diversity and humanity of the free folk, but overseeing a population of the at the wall of Night's Watch brothers, free folk, southern knights, and soldiers, even giants. And importantly, John is one of the few at the wall to accept the real threat of the others and want to have as many living people on his side against the army of the dead. The apocalyptic hero or heroes of the Long Night can't just be a warrior. They have to be a uniter, someone who can get otherwise quarrelsome folk and creatures together to fight a common enemy. Man, Nina really followed that awesome quote up with a great passage there. That was really well said, really well point. And she says, compare Stannis' intention to allow the wildlings through the wall as well as the giants if those great knees of theirs can bend because when the cold winds rise, we shall live or die together. It is time we made alliance against our common foe because Stannis is also on that page. He and John are together on that. Not 100% together. Yes, Stannis is a uniting figure. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird to be a uniting figure when you're that stubborn and and rude and just prickly and angry, but he, pff, he's doing the work, man. And correct. Yeah, he, is, he is doing a lot of things right. <laughs> he's doing some things wrong too, but he is doing a lot of things right, no doubt. He certainly has this thing, this most important of things <laughs> he's doing. <laughs> no matter what you think about Stannis, you got to give him props for taking his army north and helping fight the true enemy. That's a, that's a big feather in his cap. As stubborn as he is, he does a lot of listening to other people and following their advice. You're right. You know? Once he's convinced, he sticks to it, right? Like stubbornness goes two ways, right? Once he's convinced, I mean, he's stubbornly going to defend the realm <laughs> with whatever he has. Like that stubbornness <laughs> yeah. is now pointed in a really helpful direction, a very honorable and, and commendable direction. Consider this quote from Yee T. And the legends of the great empire of the dawn is a quote a lot of you all are familiar with, but we're going to take a little bit of a different look at it this time. When the daughter of the Opal Emperor succeeded him as the Amethyst Empress, her envious younger brother cast her down and slew her, proclaiming himself the Bloodstone Emperor and beginning a reign of terror. He practiced dark arts, torture, and necromancy, enslaved his people, took a tiger woman for his bride, feasted on human flesh and cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. Many scholars count the Bloodstone Emperor as the first high priest of the sinister Church of Starry Wisdom, which persists to this day in many port cities throughout the known world. In the annals of the Further East, it was the blood betrayal, as his usurpation is named, that ushered in the Age of Darkness called the Long Night. So we mentioned the blood betrayal earlier. This is a more thorough description of, of some of the things that happened during it. What we usually talk about here is how well this aligns with Daenerys and Euron, especially Euron, Danny being the Amethyst Empress, but these deeds of the Bloodstone Emperor, like super aligned with what Euron's trying to do, casting down the gods, the dark arts, torture, enslaving, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff is just right in there, feasting on human flesh. But What's super interesting here is how well this also aligns with human behavior in the real world during the Little Ice Age. According to Wolfgang Berenger, author of Cultural Consequences of the Little Ice Age, there was a major increase in sexual crimes like adultery, bestiality, and rape during the Little Ice Age. So that fits in with this quote here saying, taking a tiger woman for his bride, that sounds like bestiality. The, there's kin slaying, there's... Uh, dark arts and, of course, necromancy and all that. I mean, it sounds yeah. like he was one of the original furries. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> tiger woman. The tiger, yeah, that's right. Pretty furry. 
And we've already discussed the cannibalism aspects as a sad offshoot of starvation. That's something that's come up a number of times. That's one of the most more one of the more straightforward consequences of the long night or something like it. And that fits in here too. This guy, this is really the full slate of awful this this Bloodstone Emperor brings to the table. So I saved this sort of towards the end because of how well it summarizes a lot of the awful things that we slash expect from the new Long Night and may have seen versions of in the original Long Night. Uh, although how the Bloodstone Emperor of Yi Chi may have affected Westeros seems unless he really did cause the Long Night or if this is a different Long Night, that's unclear. But it certainly serves as a model for what we can expect or for some of the certain current characters. Now, a secondary quote that talks about, let's just hear the quote. Need, rather than me tell you what it talks about, here we'll, we'll just hear what it says. It is also written that there are annals in a shy of such darkness and a hero who fought against it with a red sword. His deeds are said to have been performed before the rise of Valeria in the, in the earliest age when Old Geese was first forming its empire. This legend also spread west from Ashai, and the followers of Valor claimed that this hero was named Azor Ahai and prophesy his return. In the Jade Compendium, Colloquo Votar recounts a curious legend from Yi Ti, which states that the sun hid its face from the earth for a lifetime, ashamed at something none could discover, and the disaster was averted only by the deeds of a woman with a monkey's tail. A lot of people, again, interpret the woman with the monkey's tail as Daenerys with Tyrion. Tyrion would be the monkey's tail, and Danny would be the woman. And, of course, Azor Ahai could also be her. There's the red sword, which could be light, which is light bringer in a lot of views. And we again, we get into this in some of our other episodes, but yeah, what it gets down to there is that multiple people did this. Yeah. Yeah. Which supports the notion of un required unity or possibly multiple long nights or the long night being fought against all over the world by different cultures in different ways. Which again, I like how well that parallels to climate change. Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. Nina also notes on the subject of trying to connect these legends to each other or, or not. She says, worth noting that according to George, only Westeros connects to the far, far north, meaning like the, whatever the equivalent of the Arctic Circle might be, whatever the Antarctic, which is the north one? <laughs> which is the North Pole? I never remember. It doesn't matter. Whichever one is up there in Westeros. Arctic. The Arctic, okay. Antarctic South, okay. So whatever, it would connect to the Westeros, the uh, Planetos equivalent of the Arctic. Essos, according to George, has no continental connection to that. So that does perhaps imply that it's more of a Westeros phenomenon that, or maybe that it originated there and affected places elsewhere. Or it suggests one of our other ideas, one of the other theories, which is that this simply, maybe it started elsewhere, which is why we don't get an explanation for how it started in Westeros. And it fits with our theory that it enabled the others to come forth. They didn't create it. They didn't start it, but it created the conditions that allowed them to emerge and then feed off of that darkness, energy, cold, what have you. That series of aligned possibilities works quite well, even as it disagrees with some of our other permutations, sets of ideas that are linked together. This all speaks to the different iterations of globally versus globally, but worse in some places than other versus entirely separate events told as if they were one because history has lost the truth of those things. Let's move on to another quote 
However, if this fell winter did take place, as the tales say, the privation would have been terrible to behold. During the hardest winters, it is customary for the oldest and most infirm amongst the Northmen to claim they are going out hunting, knowing full well they will never return and thus leaving a little more food for those likelier to survive. Doubtless, this practice was common during the long night. Or perhaps it emerged during the long night. That's where I want to take this discussion for a minute or two, is to think about what cultural traditions emerge from the long night. We touched on it earlier, that there would be things that came out of the long night, but we mostly focused on necessities, not cultural traditions. Now, sometimes cultural traditions are rooted in necessities, but it's still a different way to look at it. For example, we talk about the cultural tradition of burning bodies. That comes in, in part from knowing that the others can raise the dead. Or in other cultures, it's just simply because you don't want the stinky corpse around. The you know, Riverlanders do the, the Tully boat thing, I suppose. Um, maybe that's just a Tully thing, but still, these different versions emerge from different times, and it's interesting to try to it's track It's kind of a dark down. thought, by the way. What's that? You go down the rivers in the... The Riverlanders is constantly boats with decaying bodies <laughs> bouncing around all over. I don't think everyone can be doing it. <laughs> Who lives down river like, where they all end up? Funeral <laughs> boats are a plague. There's just too many. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I went out yesterday. There were three different burning boats just running down the road. <laughs> By the way, I just want to give a shout out to the show Norsemen, which they have. They talk about how Northmen will leave and then die, so they'll leave food for others. Well, Norsemen does a play on that in the very first episode where the older people in the village are told that they're going to do this. And they're like, no. No, they're like, we really I want don't to. Think I don't so. think so. Like, I don't want yeah. to. I think I might have a good 10 years like, left. Yeah, they're like, don't you yeah. want to do for the for the villages? No, I'm not. It's like, not really. Like the village doesn't mean that good to me. It doesn't really seem like we're struggling. Why not wait till it's actually a problem? And then we'll... I don't know why you want to get so far ahead of this, doing this so far in advance. Like, yes. <laughs> that's really good. That show is awesome. Yeah, it's on Netflix, Norseman. Yeah. So that's, now, a, that's an example of saying that this tradition that would have emerged during the long night. Let's go to the next one. In 1816, known as the year without a summer, six inches of snow fell in June every, and every month of the year, hard frost. Temperatures, drop, temperatures dropped as low as 40 degrees in July and August. People also called it 1800 and froze to death. And the poverty year. Hilarious. Yeah, it's just hilarious. <laughs> can't stop laughing. Between 1810 and 1820, Maine lost as many as 15,000 people. Most left after the year without a summer. 60 Vermont towns lost populations during that decade. The population of 60 more Vermont towns stayed the same, while the U.S. population grew 32%. Massachusetts gained only 50,000 people from 1810 to 1820, while Ohio gained five times as many. So again, we use that as a springboard to discuss how it happened in Westeros. Populations would have shifted probably because again, as we said, Dorne almost certainly not hit as hard as the North. That would be pretty hard to understand or explain. So if we have a roughly sliding scale, the farther south you go, probably the more survivable it is, probably the better it is. So maybe you see people, I don't know about Reachman moving to Dorne. Maybe some people will do that, but there's some cultural issues there. But certainly people moving to the stormlands from the north or from the riverlands down south a bit into the reach, stuff like that maybe, or at least moving out of the mountains down into the lowlands, possibly. Some of the people in the islands maybe would want to relocate. That's a little harder to do. A lot of peasants don't have a lot of mobility. 
people who could afford to might do that. But there's a lot of different things that would happen because, of course, we, it, it's too much to cover in one episode, the, the, the ways that the weather would affect each region. But here's one you may not have thought about. We've dealt with a lot of the major regions. Here's another one. Historians argue that the Little Ice Age also created the conditions for King Philip's 40 Years War. The cooler climate reduced crop yields, so the colonists demanded more and more land. Metacomet, cool freaking name, by the way, or King Philip, had to surrender some of his lands in lieu of a fine levied by the Massachusetts General Court in 1671. Philip forged alliances with other tribes and built forts until he launched his attacks on English settlers in 1675. Unfortunately for Metacomet, the unusually cold winter of 1675 and 76 caused many of his people to starve. It also led to one of the Indians' worst defeats in the war. Swamps that usually protected the Narragansett Fort froze during the winter. That allowed Benjamin Church and his men to massacre the inhabitants. In other words, the swamplands that protected the natives from settler incursions, they knew the swamps really well. The settlers didn't. The frozen swamps allowed them to just go like they no longer needed to worry about where they were navigating. They could just walk through it and walk over the ice or what have you. So it wasn't a big terrain issue. Two things that I want to consider. One is the neck. The neck is a swampland and the Kranigmen live in there. So it may have been a really big deal to them. The Kranigmen are really expert at hiding in the swamps and using that terrain to their advantage. All of a sudden, this terrain isn't so useful to them. If it's frozen and, and less hospitable, their ability to use it is lost a large portion of it because they're, it's no longer familiar to them. It's like, well, this isn't what we're used to. We're not used to frozen swamps. This isn't what our ancestors taught us how to deal with and their ancestors and their ancestors and so forth. There were also children hiding in the swamps in this time. I wonder if that was a, a problem for them. Maybe there was additional killings. Who knows? Because yes, the, pa- the pact said that children and, and humans were to live in peace. But surely there were Times when that wasn't the case, wasn't uniform, and maybe during the long night when there was a lot more violence, a lot more angry people, a lot more people fighting each other, maybe the children of the forest were getting blamed, like the real-world witch trials. That's one possibility. Um, Finding some scapegoat, and if they all of a sudden have a way to go in and kill a bunch of people or children at once, then they would do that. Compare this as well to what you were talking about before, Sean, about needing more land to support your ability to eat. If, if the land produces less because it's colder, you need more land to do that. There's a somewhat of an example with Brandon's gift at the wall, right? That was uh, land gifted to the wall to, for them to sustain themselves. It was debated whether or not that was the right move because it gives them something else to focus on when they should be entirely focused on defense. On the other hand, well, you've got to survive. <laughs> you can't just entirely live off of donations from the other northern houses, which is a lot of what their existence is based off of. So it, it made them a little more self-sustaining. So I wonder if that was a function. We don't know when the gift was made. Obviously, it was after the wall was built, so it couldn't have been during the long night, but it may have been things that happened during the long night may have created the knowledge and understanding that made this necessary, that led to something like Brandon's gift. Let's talk about inconsistent seasons for a minute. Here is a quote about the inconsistent seasons. Let's see what we can do here. Though the Citadel has long sought to learn the matter by which it may predict the length and change of seasons, all efforts have been confounded. Septon Barth appeared to argue in a fragmentary treatise that the inconstancy of the seasons was a matter of magical art rather than trustworthy knowledge. Maester Nichols, 
the measure of the days. Otherwise, a laudable work containing much of use seems influenced by this argument. Based upon his work on the movement of stars in the firmament, Nickel argues unconvincingly that the seasons might once have been of a regular length determined solely by the way in which the globe faces the sun in its heavenly course. The notion behind it seems true enough that the lengthening and shortening of days, if more regular, would have led to more regular seasons, but he could find no evidence that such was ever the case beyond the most ancient of tales. Hmm, it's not something that's really discussed in world that much because what would they compare it to? But are there 24 hours in a day in, in Westeros? I, we, we have certain hours, you know, like there's the hour of the wolf, hour of the owl, but we don't have a comprehensive list, so we don't know how many there are. Because it's, this is an indication that why would they, it's nothing that's come up, but it might be a thing. It might be like maybe there's 26 hours. A day. It probably isn't exactly 24. That'd be kind of weird if it was exactly the same. Yeah, I agree. But this is what you were referring to earlier, wasn't it? But yeah, at least this, yeah, this is along the lines of yeah. what I was talking about. Yeah. Maester yeah. Nicole was what it, you were thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. There was an attempt or a theory in this world that the movement around the sun is connected to the seasons and someone's trying to figure it out by looking at the stars and George is just holding out on us. <laughs> so Eandel is clearly not down for this argument. He doesn't, he's not very convinced here, but we have to use the standard Barth is probably right rule and Septon Barth is, you know, you know, he seems to think this and Maester Nickel is influenced by that. And uh, intuitively, the seasons wouldn't work like this without magic or something strange, but it's hard to, when you're living in that system to perceive that it could be different or that could it be somewhere else. Like imagine if we found out that this was our world was operating on that, that would be, how would we figure that out? If it's like figuring out that we're living in the matrix, oh, unless <laughs> without some, without a glitch in the matrix, you wouldn't know that, right? Is that someone giving you the pill? Yeah, I mean, it took us <laughs> thousands of years to figure out quite how our earth and planets were circling around the sun. You know, it right. took a long time of careful observation and we actually do have a pretty regular pattern, right? Yeah. To figure out in the first place, what if Westeros is revolving on some pattern that like the axis shifts, it, like maybe it's quote unquote regular, but maybe the pattern takes a thousand years to repeat instead of every year it repeats. You know what I mean? Yeah. It might be really hard for them to figure it out, even if it actually is right. And it might be so, even if it is regular, if it's regular in a way that takes lifetimes to repeat, it might not matter that it's regular. Yeah. We need to plan for the harvest in 38 years. You're like, all right, well, tell your kids, I guess. <laughs> Nichols' suggestion, I think it's pretty exceptional. If unpredictable seasons have been the norm for so long, why, it's, it's really interesting that he's able to even consider that it could be something else. That I mean, what, what evidence in the stars is he looking at? It's, it says that the way the globe faces the sun, and I, I don't really know what he means by that. I guess if you're able to perceive that the globe is going around another large celestial body, that it should be somewhat regular. Like if you're observing other natural patterns that are more visible to someone like watching patterns of weather or watching patterns of rain, or just seeing, seeing things being cyclical or seeing like something circles around something, why would it be uneven? Why wouldn't it be relatively even? So I guess those are the natural things he's looking at to reach that conclusion. But there's also maybe the magical evidence or just people studying in world, studying the long night and, and maybe the theory that the seasons were normal before it came out of that somehow. You mentioned like a passing celestial body, right, Sean? Yeah, yeah. We even know something like Halley's Comet comes around every 70 whatever years, yeah. you know? And that doesn't really quite affect our gravity. But what if there was something in Westeros that did come around 
every 70 years that did push it back out, tilted the orbit a little bit or sucked it a little farther away from the sun. And it took another 10 or 20 years to readjust to normal. Mm. But then it happened. Never mind, what if there's two different bodies like that? And even earlier in our own solar system, it, it, it took a while for the orbits to like stabilize the yeah. way they are. So if life evolved there at an earlier point in the solar system's development, it might not be as stable yet. There's so many things that could affect it in ways that they just haven't figured out yet. Like I was saying before, like as Copernicus and, and Kepler, as they were figuring out or trying to figure out the rotations of the planets, even when they started to figure out it was around the sun, they still don't understand why is it going around the sun? Why does it do this? You know what I mean? They still hadn't figured out like how to define gravity. And even Newton, even when we started to have very thorough, complete mathematical understandings of physics and calculus and planet rotation and everything, we still didn't fully understand Mercury. Hmm. We still thought there must be something out there that we can't see affecting Mercury. And Einstein, it was Einstein's theory of relativity to figure out. It's like, it just works different because the mass of the sun changes the passage of time even. More and more advanced calculate for them to get the, the exact, you know, that Newton's laws work perfect on Earth. But when you go outside of Earth, which when you're looking at stars and planets, you have to, it starts to be off by little bits. And science was really perplexed by it. Mm -hmm. Einstein, I, I got it figured I gotcha. out. You know, yeah. But, so yeah. <laughs> George has played with this concept in some of his other stories, at least in one of them, in the story, The Stone City, which we should cover someday because it's also got the proto version of the House of the Undying scene. And it's about a, a human explorer. It's in his Thousand Worlds setting. He goes into deep, deep space, closer to the galactic center than most any human has ever been, where these, some of these other races live, documented races. They're not like mysterious new aliens. These are people that in this world that are, that are known. He's like, yeah, things are different. Like it's vague, but physics is a little different. The closer you get to the center of the galaxy, it's the same concept. Like the Mercury's closer to the sun, which is this giant celestial body. The center of the galaxy is this massive black hole. Quirks of physics and experiential uh, perception would change in ways that we can't even conceive. So that's just getting really deep into it, man. <laughs> it's just, it's, that is serious mysteries of the universe stuff, man. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> That's like undiscovered country stuff, right? <laughs> Star <Trek>. Yeah. Probably <laughs> <laughs> isn't some big disembodied head talking. <laughs> One last... Don't be too close-minded, is he? Oh, okay, okay. There might be a giant bearded white dude in the middle of the galaxy. <laughs> Was there a super long summer just before the long night? Interesting question. If the seasons were irregular before the long night, then probably. But if not, then no, I would guess not. But either way, there probably was a super long summer after the long night, right? Because that would have been a really long winter. It would have started that irregular cycle and the cycle goes. It's a pendulum, right? The farther it swings one way, the farther it swings back the other way. So if, if the cycle started with a really long winter, it stands to reason that it would have kicked off a really long summer. I mean, couldn't it have just been like a really long spring? Yeah, something like that, yeah, maybe. Like it doesn't have to be summer necessarily. Maybe not, long. yeah. It, it, you know. It's usually how they no, phrase it. No, it couldn't be spring. It couldn't be spring. Don't you know anything? <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here with that. <laughs> Girls don't know anything about summers. <laughs> summer, maybe. Fall, maybe. Not spring. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been like the beginning of the first great recovery period. Wow, this is this is the good side. <laughs> it's like, well, we just lived through all that, but now we have like summers going on year five, and maybe it's going to go again and again. Like, we better make the most of it because <laughs> it might mean that we're about to hit another really long winter at the end of it. They wonder, you wonder how the original ancients that lived through the first, like they survived the first long night, they're going through this first long summer, and they're like, 
Is this the new normal? Yeah. Man, this is wild. It's how do you know you're living in historic times when you're living <laughs> yeah. in historic times? That would yeah. probably be an indicator. Like like how COVID is. That's probably historic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> let's not get too real. Let's stay in Westeros. Let's mm-hmm. stay in our. Let's stay in the starvation. <laughs> Deport <laughs> is. It's, it's, <laughs> it's much nicer in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not real, y'all. Hmm. So that, yeah, that does conclude our, our main discussion for today. Any closing thoughts, Sean? We have things we can talk about later with regard to the others. I, I, one thing I really like about having an episode that, that covers two things is we never worry too much about forgetting something because we can always cover it. Catch it next time around. Yeah. Even though I said next time won't be next week because we have guests in the next two weeks that are on other topics, we will certainly come back to this. So any final thoughts from y'all? I just wanted to point out, Aziz, I wore my an Iron Maiden shirt today with Eddie on it, who I think of as an Azora high figure, <laughs> like popping up into the hero in different cultures at different times. Uh-huh. That's true. He does <laughs> pop up in like the pyramids and World War II as a fighter mm-hmm. pilot. And okay. yeah, that is the, you're right. The, the artwork of, of Eddie the head. And Aziz. Appears all over. Aziz is wearing a um, Night's Watch brother, Sam and John Blues Brothers mashup shirt. Where they're like showing <laughs> their fists for anyone who couldn't see it. Um, so you guys both have band shirts on. I have, have 80s I, I have on. some savior figures on my shirt you can't see. I'm wearing a peep show shirt. You know, <laughs> saviors of the world right there. Uh, <laughs> Jez is... Hey, wait, isn't Peep Show? That's the one that has Are We the Baddies? Yeah, it does. That does have Are We the Baddies? <laughs> the guy in the Nazi yeah. uniform. Yeah, it's with David Mitchell. He, he's, uh, yeah, he, he's, he goes to do like historical recreation, one of those types of things for World War II. And then like so, slowly but surely he realizes that Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he's wearing a Nazi uniform. <laughs> somehow he pieced it together finally. <laughs> yeah, somehow he figured it out. <laughs> Okay, so the trivia question at the beginning was, what was the longest summer that's known of in Westeros? When, how long did it last and when did it begin? The answer is the summer of 288, i.e. the one that's ending just as the Song of Ice and Fire is beginning. That's right. It's the longest summer in living memory, which sets up the new long night. That's why I ended this episode with... A question about, was there a long summer before the long night? Well, there probably was one after, but either way, it's an interesting little um, realization based on the patterns we've seen here. It lasted 10 years, two months, and 16 days, according to the Citadel. Very precise. It's interesting to see. Uh, of course, they have their the white raven that denotes the change of season, so they do, they do denote it very clearly. The second longest summer known in Westeros was also not that long ago. It's during the reign of Makar. We've talked about it a few times. It started around 224, 225. It lasted till roughly 231, which kicked off a very long winter. Of course, long summer followed by long winter. That is how it goes, as you well know. We mentioned a bunch of our episodes this time, prior episodes that you can check out for further uh, listening enjoyment along the lines of here, like the Many Faced Azor High, the Great Empire of the Dawn, and the Knight's King episode, which is a religion and magic episode four. Next time, we have Joe Magician and the Freehold of Valyria. That's going to be a lot of fun. Send us any questions you may have. We look forward to having him on. Thanks as well to everyone who showed up today and watched live. We hope we could entertain you. Oh, yeah, make sure you grab a cat, Sean. 
Grab oh, yeah. a cat, Sean, please. <laughs> He's like, what's a cat, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> Sean with whiskers instead of a beard. <laughs> Join us on our Discord or our Facebook for further discussions more in, in, uh, directly and impacting what we talk about on the episode. You can leave us a rating on the new Spotify rating system if you listen through Spotify. If you are, uh, if that's the app of choice. They have their own rating system now. iTunes has had theirs forever. Spotify is a little more advanced. It requires you to actually listen to the episode. So there's no more rate. There's no more review bombing, which can happen on iTunes. So that's nice. Thanks to Nina. Thanks to Joey Townsend. Thanks to Jesse Koval and Kevin McLeod for our music. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld. Thanks to the Benjineer. And shout out to our friends Here Be Dragons. They're doing an episode of I Know That Nerd, which is one of their different series, which is like a interview series. Well... I don't know about sort of. It, it is, is yeah. an interview series. <laughs> this week's guest for them is Maester Mary, who has been a guest of ours before. She is part of the Learned Hands podcast, Learned Hands podcast, yeah. and a longtime member of the fandom, friend of ours. We've hung out with her a bunch of times. So check out Here Be Dragons and learn more about Maester Mary. Until next time. We are waiting for Sean, who I see his shadow. Yeah, is coming. there a cat coming? There is a cat coming. I can I can see a leg. Oh, a, a, a sexy Sean leg. Oh, there's a cat. And here we are. The thing everyone has wanted to see: lounging cat. <laughs> she has literally has a cat on her lap. Right I, now, yeah, I have a cat on my lap it. too. I wish you all could see, but you can't. I have Casano. He was scared because we had all these um, construction people here paint. Okay, we had people painting and doing stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, look at her. She looks so pretty. <laughs> oh, she's a nice looking cat for sure. People said they wanted your cats on a shirt, Sean. Ooh. Oh, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah. I have, well, one, I have framed photos of my cats everywhere, but I have like art that someone did for me of our four cats, like stencil drawings of them up in our bathroom. <laughs> Shea bought me a pair of socks <laughs> that have our cats' faces on. Yeah, I do. So, so, that is a real thing. Yeah, I have socks thing. with Jake and Koja, Casanova and Xerxes' faces yeah. on them. Pretty cool. Yeah. I'm uh, the only one on the block with that. Yeah, because yeah, Cora looks so pretty there. Her eyes are so amber. <laughs> yeah, they're they're copper. We could oh. see them well. Yeah, she's which is big. which was a clue to the vets that she had a problem with her liver. Apparently, oh. that's just so you know. Wow. If you have a cat that's struggling and has copper colored eyes, get their liver checked on. Wow. Yeah, this this boy kitty, Sean and Rita, have to give her a lot of medication actually, but yeah. she's doing better. So that's cool. She's doing great. Everyone. And she's really cute looking right here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So everyone, when you're going to bed tonight, add a little extra thought for little Cora here. Yeah, <laughs> so pr- she really is so Send pretty there. Um, yeah. All so right. on behalf of the cats, on behalf of Ashea and Sean, until next time, Valar reroutes. <laughs>